when giant monsters and giant robots collide. A movie that everyone has already podcasted about, but that's not stopping us now. This is the Awesome Cast. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Awesome Cast, your podcast for everything awesome. I'm your host, Basil, and with me tonight is... Doug. And Kevin. And that's us. It's like three times in a row, and we're updating remotely on time. Yeah. Woohoo! We're almost real podcast. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. Actually, I think, I think we count as a real podcast, since I believe you guys are getting to go to... Is it Otakon as actual press? Yeah. Well, actual nerd press. Uh, nerd press. Nerd yeah. press. So, I mean, I think we count on some level, which is good. So, we're doing it right. We just got to keep it up. That's right. Uh, so, so in case you didn't know, we're going to be, uh, Kevin and I are going to be at Otakon this upcoming weekend, as crazy it may be, in Baltimore, Maryland. So, if you hear us, come say hello. It might be us. It might be some guys who sound like us, and boy, will that be awkward for everyone involved, which is doubly the reason why you should take that chance. It's true. Did did we ever podcast about your your doppelganger that was at Hamacon? No, I, I don't think we ever did. <laughs> oh, okay, then we, we need to interrupt. Oh, yeah, because we, do, we don't do an awesome cast for Hamacon, because it's kind of where we work, so, yeah. Yeah, we, we all do panels and... Feels a little awkward Things. to be plugging our own con, and we don't we don't feel yeah we are not really impartial about it. It's so, awesome. You should go. Yeah, but, it uh, is awesome. <laughs> I do, I do various panels that you should come and attend, and we even got Kevin to do panels this last year, so Yay. even more awesome. But uh, and of course, you know, Basil does opening opening ceremonies, closing ceremonies, the pain train, all sorts of things. They're completely awesome, and you should go to if you ever come to a Hamacon, which you should go to because it's one of the most fun conventions. That I go to, which, admittedly, I don't go to that many anymore, and what I've pared it down to are all really great conventions. <laughs> I've mostly pa- weeded out the ones already that I don't like. Uh, but yeah, so it's, uh, the the basil doppelganger. Yeah, but at at this particular Hamacon, there was another guy walking around that Basil was the best man at my wedding. Basil was my best man. He is my best friend. And I would still mistake this guy for Basil from across the room. And if you're hearing any noise that the microphone is picking up, that would be a small fish I call Gur. I don't. He, he's not called Gur after the. Uh, he's not called Gur after Invader Zim. He's called Gur because when you look at him, he kind of gives you the impression that that's the noise he wants to be making. If he weren't a fish, he's very unfriendly looking, and that was just him digging through gravel. But yes, yeah, so at Hamacon. <laughs> There was a uh, there was a basil doppelganger wandering around. Like I think we finally at the last day, somebody on staff worked up the courage to go ask him if he was cosplaying Basil, and to which he responded, "Who?" So, but he did. He looked exactly like Basil. It was a little it was a little weird, especially since he was creepily taking photographs of girls in very skimpy clothing, and that's not something Basil does. <laughs> Also, later on, during another staff meeting, some guy comes and goes, 
Hey, were you that guy with the camera at Hamacon? I went, I went, I went, I went, no. And I don't look like that guy. That guy looks like me. <laughs> and he goes, oh, I'm sorry. And later on, it's like, was it the guy? Yeah, yeah, it was that guy, yeah. And he was going to tell me, he's going to teach me some sweet kung fu ninja moves. And, or no, sorry, some sweet martial artist moves. God, yeah. it sounds like the anti-basil. And yeah. I was like, that is the exact opposite thing that I would do. I don't know any sweet martial artist moves. Maybe I should learn some and be like, yeah, I've got some sweet martial artist moves. <laughs> yeah. But, but no. I think you should take ballet. Some ballet moves. Yeah, that would be the opposite there, sort of. <laughs> be pretty sweet it would be sweet it would be it would be freaking amazing is what it would be i would believe i could teach you some sweet martial artist moves if i had enough alcohol in me i remember i once thought that i knew sweet martial arts moves because i played so much tekken i was also i believe 15 and prone to think these kinds of things it's true so speaking of 15 and prone to thinking these things we have gotten various comments and things that remind us that, oh, wait, people actually do listen to us. Yes. First of all, I'd like to thank everybody who replied to us, even if we're not addressing you specifically here. Uh, and please reply to us more, because maybe we'll talk about what what you had to do us about to you. Um, but I do want to talk about these yeah, at least three of these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, if you want to comment or anything, of course, the website is awesomecast.com. O-S-M-C-A-S-T, which I assume you know because you're listening right now. But you can leave us a comment there. We have an email, awesomecast at gmail.com. We also now have a Facebook thing that you can like. We have You can leave us reviews on iTunes. We're on that thing. Re- reviews are nice. I never look at the thing because I get iTunes, but we exist and someone should. So the first thing we're going to use is, I think we're actually going to go in chronological order. So we're going to this comment that was made not even on our own website. This was on the Chains Up of Faye's podcast website, but it was about the our MTAC Devil's Dozen co-podcast we did together. And I just assumed that the person comments on this one is because MTAC retweeted their their link to the podcast and not ours. MTAC. <laughs> Don't think I didn't notice that. Look at you. One of the other good conventions that I go to. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, this comes from a Jared Cohen or Cohen or Jared. I don't it's know. It's probably Cohen. And he corrected us some things. For example, the 18 plus My Little Pony panel was grim dark, not Rule 34. Huh? I, apparently, there was a day that they had an eight, they had an adults only My Little Pony oh. panel, which were like, why would you have an 18 up My Little Pony panel? And I guess it's for like all the all the violent stuff people like to draw of the ponies doing. Oh, I see. Okay. The dark side of the uh, fandom. My, 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 my assumption. But the dark side of the fandom, not the pervy side of the fandom. Oh, okay. Mostly, probably. Uh, <laughs> but he then goes to say, and the coexistence of non-anime and anime fandoms is fine. Especially since they're minority by comparison. 
I imagine you can literally find that the percentage is far less than 25% of the total panels. I really don't think if it's an anime con, if you're going like, well, it's less than 25%, that's still a really high percentage to have of not anime pa- panels at an anime con. Yeah. But that's me. I I do, in fact, see a place for it, but at the same time, I'm also well aware because because of how much you've gotten involved with a convention mm-hmm. and several other conventions in the area that there actually is a lot more submitted, like, of panels that are submitted, there's actually a larger percentage that are not anime-related at all, and it's actually by people making an effort to keep the anime in anime in anime cons that the cons stay on focus. And that otherwise, that, yeah, uh, My Little Pony, um, My Little Pony... Oh, what's that other one? Homestuck. Homestuck. Uh, would actually have probably yes. a greater presence if everything was just accepted based off pure volume. But yeah, we'd be up to our elbows in ponies, Homestuck, Sherlock, Doctor Who. Yeah. Whatever the kids are into these days, Hannibal. I don't know. Uh. Yeah, like there was. I remember thinking that at, 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 at one of the cons I was at recently, and I can't remember which one it was, if it was MTAC or if it was Hamacon, that there were an awful lot of doctors for an anime convention, which I absolutely... I love Doctor Who, and I loved all the doctors. I especially loved all the fourth doctors that are now coming out of the woodwork. I like That makes me so happy inside. But at the same time... It's like I'd go up, I'd like, you know, hug the person, I'd talk excitedly about them being the fourth doctor, or I'd say, oh man, you're, you're such a great tenth or eleventh doctor, or man, you're the only eleventh doctor I've seen, or you're the only ninth doctor I've seen. Uh, but after I left that, those encounters, I, I'd always kind of wonder to myself, but why are they at the anime convention? <laughs> uh, but, you know... I, I, I do kind of agree that, you know, show your fandom how you want to show your fandom. Go to the con you want to go to. Yeah. I am for, like, the people who run anime conventions keeping... Keeping, uh... Keeping it an- mostly anime. Keeping it mostly anime-related. Like, if you're not going to keep it mostly anime-related, become, like, a general... Become, like, a general fandom convention... You know, and also you know, south the southeast, other than Dragon Con, you yeah, don't have a don't, whole what, lot of sci-fi outlet like yeah, not like, anime science fiction. Like uh, GMX is an example of another of another convention that has a non-anime outlet. But the truth of the matter is that if you ca- if you're just a general fandom, if, if you're a person who's just generally into fandom, and you come to an anime convention. That may be a way for you to get into anime, so it's not that I don't want you there. Yeah. It's not that anybody doesn't want you there. Like, you should be wanted there. Everybody should be accepted at the cons. So, like I said, I do think the people who are running the cons need, do need to try to keep the non-anime panels to a minimum. But this 25% thing, I think, is fine, like, keeping keeping one or two, like, non-anime panels for the people who are there who want them. Well, I will point out again, one or two panels is definitely not 25%. 5%. Yeah. Like, and that's and it's fine. Like, one or two panels even a day is fine. 
because overall it is a way like that's like you know like you know there's enough people a super who want small mm-hmm. percentage of panels and that might be what he was actually getting yeah. at but well, yeah if there's enough people who yeah, want it I, it doesn't most of the panels hurt. I do aren't even anime specific panels despite the fact that I do them at anime cons they're mostly like Japanese culture but that's sort of a different thing because that gives people contextualization yeah it gives people perspective for the anime Yes. For the anime, and so I feel that is yes. again that's my yeah. so much in anime starts making way more sense if you know anything about Japanese culture, and some <laughs> you can't help but pick up through osmosis, but still, it's like oh man, as I am now studying the Shinto religion, like I-, I was already studying it a little bit before, but now that I'm actively studying it, like I don't even have anything to comment on that. It's more like just oh Japan, it's... oh Japan. You so crazy, not sure you're wrong, but still so crazy. <laughs> and here is where, you know, and he talks a lot of other things that, you know, we covered, like, you know, that there, there is a culture track, but it's not as well known. Mm-hmm. You know, how they're ending things 15 minutes, and that's maybe a little bit too early. Uh, but his, then he goes into, I resent your generalization of fan panels. I was one of the hosts for the Bleach fan panel, and it was done well. Run problem is too many hosts, but I think stopping at around three is a good principle. Also, dealing with the overly enthusiastic fans is something a panelist needs to be able to do for anything. Not even just fandom-based panels. The outline of a panel is also important, and keeping the pace going can be difficult because the fans going on tangents, which you need to be able to nip in the bud quickly. Answering as a character definitely requires screening. I agree. Now, the whole thing is that when he prefers the fan panels, he means the, the panels where they, they go and... Where they they basically role-play the characters, you know. It's... And my response is still, that's dumb. Yeah. I was actually agreeing with him up until the point where you reminded me that what he's referring to is characters is people role-playing the characters. I've only actually seen that effectively done... At host club panels, and I think part of that is because host club itself lends itself to, like, the the boys the of the concept. host club themselves yeah. are basically playing roles for their guests. Yeah. Which I think is one of the reasons why yeah, it worked a, well for host a club. Good, there's a good, at least one good Oron group out there. Uh, yeah. Uh, I've seen it done... I've seen it done with Hetalia... Um, and I'm trying to think of, like, the most diplomatic phrasing for this. Which I've probably just ruined by saying that I'm looking for the most diplomatic phrasing for this, so I'll just phrase it non-diplomatically. Train wreck. Yeah, I've seen some horrible... Some horrible things of, uh, of it done for... For, uh... For, um... Hetalia. H- and most of the time when I complain about fan panels... I'm actually complaining about a Naruto panel I went to one time where nobody was actually role-playing the characters. It was simply, there were like five guys sitting up there who had no outline for the panel that basically just wanted to entirely do like a question and answer, you know, about Naruto. Like, and just talk about how great it was for... Which there is a place for that, but it's not a panel. Like, that's not a panel, that's like a fan get-together. Yeah. Like, that's a fan gathering, and so... That's a fan gathering, and so if the con wants to refer to it as that, I'm cool with it. But if it's referred to as a panel, and I show up to that, 
I'm kind of a little irritated. I would like the panelists to at least have a plan or outline, much like uh, much like uh, our guy here. What's his name again? Jared. You know, much like Jared is much like Jared is saying, having an outline, sticking to it, knowing how to control the overexcited fans and curb it and keep it on track is super important. And so, in that respect, I completely agree with him when it comes to fan panels. The one problem I disagree with him is still going to be that issue of, in most cases, it doesn't really seem appropriate to roleplay as if you are the character, because the fact of the matter is that you're not. You're not even the creator, unless, like, perhaps if you actually worked with some, in some, like, professional capacity yeah if you worked in some yes. professional capacity like if you were the voice actor and you wanted yes. to do a role play version yeah. if of- you're mark mir you can come to your panel dressed as commander shepherd <laughs> yeah but Ma- if Micah wants to do a panel as soul eater evans i think that's fine but short of that like short of that you know you need to be somebody who either you personally know the creator of the manga or you personally have worked on, like, the translation of it or something. Like, you need to have some professional capacity before you do a fan roleplay situation. Now, you can dress up as characters. That's cool. But really, if you're going to do a fan panel, it should be a panel that talks about the show and contextual... and does things that let people who are fans about the show be able to enjoy the show more... Than just going, oh man, they were characters that was so funny. Now, I don't know if this... Like, I have been to an Inuyasha panel where it was just a discussion on Inuyasha. Like, it was just a discussion of its themes. Um, It was actually a little bit like the panel you used to do about Rumiko Takahashi where the Mm -hmm. panelists were not only going, isn't Inuyasha great, but they were also telling you about other things Rumiko Takahashi has done. Right. Uh, You know, it, it was a panel... Um, they did all the things that I expect the panelists to do, uh, and they were dressed up as the characters, and I thought that was neat. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I thought that was nice. I've, actually, now that I think of it, I've been to, uh, I've been to Madoka panels that did yeah. the same thing, but they weren't pretending to be the characters. Right. They just happened to be yeah. dressed up as them. There's a big difference between running a Gundam panel and being dressed as Char and doing a Gundam panel where you pretend to be Char. <laughs> Which he then, you know, speaking to that guy... Who was also the guy who did the terrible, terrible, terrible demons panel? <laughs> the terrible, terrible. It wasn't that guy. bad. I kind of liked it. Like you like it because you made it better. You like, made it a million fold. Yes, you did. Uh, we you like. And, well, he comments on like he's yes. pretty much like I didn't think it was that bad because the format was good. And you're right, the format was good. But if you if you have a good format and you, and you botch it horribly, it's still botched horribly. Yeah. I thought it was a good idea. <laughs> oh, it's a good idea. We totally ripped it off. But <laughs> that was a great idea. <laughs> and then the next person who commented in the same thread was uh, Molly Stark, who was one of the co-panelists for the Go, Go, Go in a Guy panel, which we couldn't make because we were do- stuck doing another panel at the same yeah, time. Yes, but... Uh, I remember you guys desperately wanted yeah, to Yeah, we wanted to see panel. that. We wanted to see that one a lot. And if you're listening, Molly, because you asked if... Uh, if you guys did the Go and a Guy panel I did way a couple of years ago, then I know all the panelists this year saw you there. If you only did the one at MTech a couple of years ago, though, I know I, at least I missed that one. Don't worry. It was us both times. Yes. It was the same panel. Essentially. 
<laughs> That's okay, and we're, there's going to be another one, a, a new one at AWA. It's going to be for more uh, the obscure stuff, I hope. Yes, get on that, Kevin. I'm sort Don't of... worry about it. It's a- after yeah. Otakon. Technically, I have worked on it. <laughs> Technically. Uh... And then the, uh, the next thing we're going to talk about is, for, uh, it was an email following uh, soon afterwards by a person named Sarah. And she was uh, the girl who did the Kabbalah. Well, hello, I'm the girl that ran What is a Sephiroth Kabbalah and Anime panel at MTech and other cons. A friend sent me a link to your MTech podcast a while ago, and I just wanted to say how much I appreciate all the lovely things you said about my panel. I try really hard to present good panels, and it's hard to get accurate feedback from people that aren't my friends. So I was wondering if you ended up going to see the Anime Angelology panel that I ran that Sunday, which you also mentioned in the podcast. I would love to know if you have any feedback on that one, since it's a lot newer than the Kabbalah one and a little rougher. Thank you. Sadly, when we were talking about that panel, we were talking about how we were really sad that we probably weren't going to make it, and we didn't. No, which is a shame. We we really liked the Kabbalah panel. Like, I think that that was one of the ones that... I wanted to go see, but I didn't have the strength left in me. <laughs> but that said, the next time, Sarah, that you do another panel that's not Kabbalah, send us an email before MTAC, and we'll make it a point to go to your panel. Yeah, we will make it a point we'll, we to go make to your it panel. A point to go to your panel. I'd also like to echo her sentiment that. As somebody who does panels at, for conventions, it's really hard to get feedback from people that's not your friends. So there is a huge part of any panelist that wonders, oh my gosh, was that actually yeah. any good? Did I flummox it terribly? So if anybody out there is listening, if you see a panel, you know, and you have feedback to give about the panel, please give it to the panelists. They, they actually do want it, you know, to know either to know... If they need to scrap the idea completely, if they could, if there's something they can do to make it better, if uh, if or if it's genuinely good and they just need to keep going down this vein, uh, like I, I, as always, I you know recommend avoiding sending like inflammatory flames or or just like throwing about insults but you know constructive criticism is like people who do panels genuinely appreciate constructive criticism so if you've got it give it if you just have compliments give that too (laughs) but her panels are very good again can you say your name again sarah do you have a last name she does, but I don't want to say it. So oh, okay. An email, not like a comment that's you know. Okay, well, public on the web. Sarah does do. Uh, Sarah does do very good panels. From what from what I've seen, I've been to like two of her panels. I they were actually both the Kabbalah panel, and the second one was even better. The second time was even better than the first time. So she does do good panels. So I do. If you're at a convention and you are looking at what to do and you see that she's one of the panelists, I highly recommend going to see her panels. They're very informative. She knows what she's talking about and she can answer your questions very well. Alright. And then the ne- this next one is, is going to be more of a, a wonderful example of not realizing that people actually listen to us talk sometimes. Yeah. And this message from, comes from Carla, Queen of Butts. Can I... Before you even read this one, can I go ahead and just 
give my disclaimer that I want people to understand even before he reads this message. Most of the time, when we do the pod, when we do like the con update, uh, Basil probably isn't drunk, but I know I'm usually drunk. It's late Saturday night, and we're doing it on Saturday night because on Sunday, I myself am going to be completely burnt out. I'm not going to have any energy left to do anything aside from sit and maybe knit, draw, do some other activity that just involves me sitting and not actually interacting with anything. I'll probably be the person camped out next to our luggage because we've had to check out and I get uncomfortable if I don't have a base camp and so I'll be holding down what I have now labeled as our temporary base camp until we leave and pressuring everybody else to leave. So a lot of the reason that you don't hear a bunch about the panels on Sunday is because I make us leave on Sunday. We usually haven't seen them yet when we do this. When we do our comic well, point, this one is actually about our Penguin Jump podcast that we did here. Oh, I jumped the gun. That's another one that I wanted us to read. <laughs> actually, was, or was that in response to the previous guy? I think what you said now was when we were responding with the previous guy. The first okay. One. Well. Yeah, the, that, 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 that response was actually meant for the first guy. I think Basil just didn't read that part of his yeah. comment right. out. And that that is that one of the things he said is that the panels on Sunday were not that he yeah. he was frustrated with us for being so critical of the panels on Saturday when the panels on Sunday were worse. Yeah, and we haven't a seen that yet. doesn't change my opinion <laughs> of the panels on Saturday. Uh, B everything I just said in that little rant previously yeah. is that on Sunday I usually I usually can't make it to panels because I'm ready to GTFO. We do it Saturday and, night. And, of and course, even if I'm not there, even if I'm not there, it's just you guys, because you guys are just going to be the ones at Oticon. Like, even if you don't have me sitting there pressuring you guys to leave, you guys still haven't been to the panel, because right. on Sunday, there is literally There's no, no time, time to do it, and we got we to do it Saturday night. Because the con is trying to shut down, yeah. like, anything that they do have set up for podcasts and hospitality, like... Uh, Probably gonna be shut down yeah, sometime early Sunday afternoon. At yeah, the latest. It, it, it's gonna be shut. It's gonna be shutting down really, really soon. Like yeah. there's just not enough time to do a con review on Sunday. However, I should say all our con reports, we tend to be at least mildly inebriated to outright drunk, is a fair warning for all things. Yeah, like I've had two beers right now. <laughs> Thinking of getting a third. So back to butts. What is the? Well, it, the, the, the person Comment. was Carla, Queen of Butts. <laughs> oh. uh, I'm not going to read all of it because some of it's kind of spoilery about this section, but this is dealing with um, Yuri and Yuri's friend, and particularly the, the, the backstory. Mm-hmm. Yes, the character of... named Yuri in Penguin Drum. And anyways, the whole thing was, as she pointed out, was that she was she's a, tr- a trans girl and lesbian herself. And, because I'm never, pronouns are weird. But what they want to say, first of all, it's really not cool what you said about the, oh, but is there actually Yuri in the show? I'm a lesbian and my peen doesn't change that. Just ask my girlfriend who's also a lesbian. Like, I need to go back and really listen to it, but I'm, pos- I'm pretty positive it was probably me. And I'm going to apologize because really when I said that, that was more than anything else to get a rise out of Kevin. Yeah. Because <laughs> Kevin's a huge huge Yuri fan and any chance to mess with him 
I take. Yeah. yeah. So that was purely a case of... More yanking my chain than attempting to yank any of our listeners' chains. But <laughs> as a chain was yanked, I do apologize for that. And we actually think that, you know... It's not our intention to insult anybody or offend anybody. Unless it is actively our intent to insult somebody and offend somebody. And then we'll pretty much come out and say it pretty blatantly. We'll insult, we insult individuals, not groups, <laughs> as a general rule. At least, at least in intentions. If it yes. happens accidentally, it happens. Yes, and and we if apologize. we are alerted to it, as Basil's doing here, we will apologize. And... Yes, whatever, whatever you have, whatever you feel you are, you are whatever you want to be, you can be. And we are totally cool with that. You rock on with your bad self. That's right. Like, I remember I was mostly bringing up, I think, the point that you made your comment to. Mostly just because I thought it was a super interesting point. <laughs> and I thought it was a super interesting perspective to look at that was kind of different from, uh, I think, the perspective that I had heard from Kevin before of, oh my gosh, isn't this great? There might be some, Yur- like, Yuri might be Yurying. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> like it's, it's also one of those things where th- there's... Just enough context in that backstory that you can spin it out more one in a billion different ways, depending on your own perspective yeah, on things. Like, and you know, that perspective that I proposed during that panel, uh, during that conversation about Penguin Drum, maybe that I I may have been overthinking it. I may have been not correct, but. The fact of the matter is that if anybody, if there is ever a director who asks you to overthink about something and and just think about it a little bit deeper, think about something that you haven't thought about before, it's this director. And so that's what I went with. So it's, it's a totally valid interpretation that, you know, I don't know if I agree with it, but I could totally see it as a possibility. Mm-hmm. And I think that's more what I was trying to get in the conversation. But you can listen to it and comment and tell me if I'm an idiot. That's cool. I am down with that. It will not be the first stupid thing I say in my life, nor will it be the last. But it was mostly to get a rise out of Kevin. But it was mostly get a rise out of Kevin. I mean, yeah. I think Kevin's secretly elevator sexual. I mean, come on. Like, you know, like, how much more open about things can you get? I don't know if you guys... Well... I do know that you guys did not see the look on Kevin's face when Basil did say that thing to, to Kevin, but Kevin did have, like, the saddest, like, puppy and snow face ever. It was pretty hilarious, but sadly it was something that was hilarious only to us, and we did not mean to step on anybody, on anybody's toes or hurt any feelings with it. Just Kevin's. <laughs> That's right. Chances are we're making fun of somebody... It might just be Kevin. But we only do that because we love. Yes. And that's messages to the awesome cast. Which then would bring us to our next segment. You know it. You tolerate it. You definitely at least probably listen to it. It's Moments of Awesome. It's a moment of awesome. I'm getting another beer. This moment of bro- awesome brought to you by beer. 
it's alcohol, and you drink it. Please drink responsibly. So, Kevin, tell us about things that are awesome um, that are in your purview of existence. Well, uh, not too long ago, uh, out came Shin Megami Tensei 4 for 3DS, which is, of course, is actually much further than the fourth game in the Shin Megami Tensei franchise, but with spinoffs and such. But it is a... If you don't know what Shin Megami Tensei is, well, it invented Pokemon before Pokemon. Except if instead of collecting cute little monsters, you were collecting demons and monsters and gods of folklore and legend. And then, you know, you fight. <laughs> if probably more people are familiar with the Persona series, which is the spinoff, this is a little less highly social storytelling oriented. This is more... The Shin Megami Tensei games are usually more in the vein of your classic dungeon crawlers uh, with good stories, but more of a, a story more about situations and about individuals, more about grand scale situations and about the events of a group of people. Mm-hmm. Well, it's much more traditional. Yes. Especially as, as JRPGs go. Yeah. Um, uh, the earliest example of the franchise honestly resemble wizardry as much as anything else. Uh, but the original was like on the NES. Yeah. Like this is a really, really old series that just now got installment number four. Yeah, I mean, oh, in the U.S. we've gotten three and four, and the little Interpol game between three and four that isn't really numbered. <laughs> now they they do constantly make. A bazillion spinoffs. There's like Devil Survivor. There's Devil Summoner. There was Soul Hackers. Yeah. Also recently on 3DS, there is Persona. Like Shin Megami yeah. Tensei is very much a brand. Yeah. At I, this point, like a franchise I, of itself. Yeah. At times, it's been the number three under Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy in terms of RPG franchises in Japan uh, in popularity. But, but what's really neat I found about Shin Megami Tensei Four is how much it's still like the original was. I remember playing the first two through various methods that one could use a computer with. Yes. And now playing four, the art style is still very much there. I, it's Yes, except now they actually have art quality for the monster portraits where it's, it almost looks like they took it out of the art books, to be honest. And that's that's kind of awesome. Yeah, but like all the characters, like, you know, know when they show you the faces. Yeah, they show you faces. But when you look at the models, when you're looking at the characters in front of you, they've got that, like, almost faceless, yeah, they're the, you know, look to them. Kind of more simpler. shadows. Like, it's very, it's much more, it's a very distinctive and, and creepy art style. And while there's lots use. of animations for attacks and magic effects, the portraits are very static, um, which is some people have complained about. I honestly kind of like, I don't know. Uh, it's an aesthetics thing. I like the old school. Like, well, that's, and that's the thing is that this is very much as an old school RPG, but it's hard brought to, you know, but brought to 3DS graphic standards yes. and still makes use of the extra horsepower you get out of the, the 3DS so you have these really awesome-looking portraits that they can move around in stuff, and really like you know, especially for fighting bosses where they where they really like you have really big images and they move them around and stuff, and you get to see all this really neat, neat, really gritty detail in the portraits that you wouldn't normally see even in a polygonal model. Yeah, like you wouldn't just get the detail of the art that you get in these portraits. There are a lot of good artists involved in this project, too. The art, the monster art is worth looking at. 
So I, I'm, I'm playing it, and the game that actually kicked me off Shimigami Tensei I've been playing lately has been mine moment, which is Shadowrun Returns. Also a very good game. Like, one thing about me that you may or may not know is that I am a gigantic Shadowrun fanboy. I, I mean, ginormous. I've been playing many games with Basil where he has actually been, where the GM has delegated, like, and Basil, you GM the magic system for me because that's too complicated and I can't learn it. Like, and what got me into Shadowrun, and also what got me eventually into tabletop role-playing, period, with Shadowrun, um, was Shadowrun for the Super Nintendo. Where you played as Jake Armitage, and he wakes up in a morgue, he's got to figure out why he might have been, why he was dead, but not dead. Yeah. I actually played the Genesis Shadowrun, which was totally different. (laughs) But, that, the whole idea of the cyberpunk world but it was still filled with magic and you know they had made a world where they coexist but constantly collide and the idea that you're you know these mercenary units running under the cover of night to to stick it to the man it was so 80s it was it was was very much like you know gigantic corporations and you think nowadays especially with corporations just really running rampant like you know where they're too big to go to jail now is the time that we need shadow runners more than ever to stick it to the man. But be it that as it may, this game is done by Hairbrain Hair, Studios. Yeah, Hairbrain Studios. Um, and it's being led by Jordan Wiseman, who was the original creator of Shadowrun, like the tabletop game and setting. And they did a Kickstarter because they wanted to do a new Shadowrun computer game. And they got like a million, two million bucks, like a crazy amount. And they put together this awesome PC game that's very, also very old school implementation. It's an isometric turn-based role-playing game with lots of dialogue trees and there's no voice acting except for like grunts and, you know, and calls and everything is text and you have dialogue trees. (laughs) And it's glorious. (laughs) And you can create your characters and it... And man, it drips Shadowrun. Like, it's obviously the creator. Like, it's got all the correct terminology. The setting looks awesome. And while it's got that isometric look that Super Nintendo did, it's in full, like, high definition. They drew, like, high re- high resolution art. And they did a really, really good job of fitting the polygonal models onto the backdrop where it really feels like you're looking at this. You're, it all looks like the same thing. You know, the character, you know, the, the background art is all drawn and the characters are all polygons, it still looks like the same thing. And it looks like they're actually walking through the environment. They're casting shadows on things. It all looks complete. And that's something that role-playing games, especially when you try to do the polygons on not polygons, is super hard. I don't think a lot of people realize and look at this graphic going, well, it looks so simplistic. Like, no, you don't know what they've done. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it looks really good. And the gameplay, I'm told, is very similar to XCOM. I still need to play XCOM. Well, certainly the new XCOM, it, the combat system really, at least from my opinion, resembled that a lot. In a very good way. But there is a good chance that we'll do an awesome cast just on Shadowrun Returns. So, <laughs> I, I'm going to pass the mic, as it were, 
over to Doug. I've got nothing awesome going on in my life right now, Basil. Whatever. I think someone's been watching shows like, I don't know, Free. (sighs) (laughs) Eccentric Family. Yeah. Yeah, I've been watching all of that. (laughs) The problem is... The problem is... My husband had to have gallbladder surgery. I myself, a few weeks, like a week and a half later, had to go into the emergency room with, like, super low blood pressure, super low heart rate, you know, chest pains and heart attack-like symptoms, despite the fact that I'm, like, a runner and I run constantly. Things are generally just not great around here. (laughs) But if I had to pick out... The awesome things that are going on right now. Uh, I would have to say, I would have to say free. Like, just talking about the new season of anime. Uh, okay, let me tell you why free is awesome. Free is not awesome for the reasons that I'm sure everybody is going to listen to the pitch of my voice and think that free is awesome. (laughs) Free is awesome. Because it is what it is, and it doesn't apologize for it. Okay? Uh. You see, I usually hate shows that claim to be shown in anime, but then you watch them, and they're clearly Fujoshi bait. Something about it just makes me angry. In fact, the primary reason I, I watched, like, the entire first season of Black Butler was actually in, like, half of a, half rage. I was half raging at that show just to watch it. Um, I know that people can comment that Blue Exorcist is or is not Fujoshi bait. I think that it's bland shounen enough to not be Fujoshi bait. One of the reasons I cannot tolerate watching uh, Hitman, you know, Hitman Reborn, I can't watch it, is because it's so blatant about its Fujoshi bait that I, I just, I can't even tolerate it long enough. But, and so this, and so this anime, okay, its first advertisement was a 30 second, like, little TV dancing thing of boys, like, horsing around a pool. Like, it was like four or five pretty boys, like... Chiseled abs everywhere. Yeah, just like, messing around with each other at the pool. The ne- And from that alone, people on the internet, crazy, beloved people of the internet, made, like, entire personalities for them. Like, I don't even know, like, Twitter, like, not Twitter, a Tumblr, Tumblr was apparently just set ablaze by this entire thing. Like, I don't even know if their, like, personality predictions have been correct or not, because I've been anti-internet lately. Uh, but they've just been set, set ablaze. And, uh, okay. And so then... The next thing that came out was a the studio that the same animation studio that released that little thirty second short really announced that they were releasing a new anime called Free, and that's all they said about it. 
That's all they said. Now, if you've noticed, anime titles have been getting suspiciously longer and longer and longer. I'm looking at you, Anohana, which is actually titled The Flower That We Saw That Day. <laughs> yeah, which sadly, a lot of these shows end up for me going some, yeah, but the last word in the title. Uh, <laughs> well, it's a case of light novels. Yeah. yeah. Light, light novels, and I guess to keep themselves relevant and recognizable, they're constantly just using longer and longer and longer names. A certain magical index. Which yeah, means yeah. that the anime that get made from them have longer and longer titles. So in the midst of, of these, like, giantly huge titles, we have this anime that's simply titled Free... Free. Double exclamation point. Now, granted, um, by its by Kyoto Animation, and it's by a bunch of guys who swim in high school as a swim team. Um, and it also has a an accompanying light novel Yeah. that Kyoto Animation is publishing themselves. Yes. And it's got a light, it's got a longer name. It's like something something freestyle. But you know, but still for the anime they were they immediately went It's free. It's free. Because the guy, he swims. Free. Free. Yeah, and that's that's the thing about it, is that if you actually watch it, it is basically the same as any other sports anime. Like, it's just a sports anime. Um, The fact that the character, that, you know, it's an all-male sports team is pretty standard for a sports anime. The difference is that they're not putting on jerseys, they're putting on swimsuits, so there's gonna be a lot of skin showing. Which is, I don't know what reputation it's having on the internet, but I imagine that probably a lot of people are scoffing at it going, uh, you know, it's just a bunch of pretty naked boys and, well, it is that. In fact, but that's part of what I like about it is that while it is that, it is so unapologetic about the fact that that's what it's doing, but it's also not pandering. So it's unapologetic and not pandering, so it's not quite Fujoshi bait, while at the same time being Fujoshi bait. It's being a serious sports anime about a sport where the guys just don't wear much clothes. It's well, a fact. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, what, what, what can you do? And, and they do, like, they do horse around the pool. Like, they do kind of, like, a hug on each other, and it, it really is, if you, if you put it in any other contextualization you wouldn't necessarily have pinned this down as being, oh, that's just to entertain the ladies. You know. But I, I will say, though, that while you say it's it's not really, it's not so much serious. It's very, it is a very carefree anime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, like it's... It is an anime that, A, knows how to make, you know, to, to have fun. It's an anime that knows how to have fun. And if you watch this, you realize that a lot of this anime is really about these guys are having fun. Yeah, it's about a bunch of guys just... Just having fun. It is a very gay anime in that it's very happy. Yes. <laughs> like, but it, it's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's an excellent example of sports anime. And Kyoto Animation still knows who the audience is. The dudes are cut like no one's business. Oh yeah, like, I mean, they, they know could... that mostly girls are going to be watching this sports anime, so they have, they have drawn the boys appropriately, but at the same time... That's not what it's about. Right. It's still about the characters. And really, really, that's probably, like, the best thing for Joshi you could possibly do. Yeah, like, it feels your... like somebody finally got it. 
is give them some actual characters to write their fan fictions and and yeah. stuff about. Like, you know, give them some meat for those bones. Let them worry about writing the smut. You just write the good characterization and story. Wow, I really stepped on that one. What do you mean? Throwing meat on those bones. <laughs> well, I just, that, as soon as I saw my like, oh. Yeah. Yeah, you did. Yeah. At least it's not as bad as the earlier trip up you had. Talking about getting a hard one later. <laughs> oh, now it's really <laughs> out of context. That is 100% out of context. We had tacos for dinner, and Basil said that he would have another. We asked Basil if he wanted. The last hard shell. And he said, no, I'll get a hard one later. I want a soft one now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, but speaking of hard and speaking of soft, what we're going to talk about is in no way soft, isn't always awesome. Hey, can I talk about the other thing? Yes. Okay. So before we talk about the thing that is in no way hard and is in no way soft, I'm going to talk about the eccentric family. So I talked about I talked about the pretty boys swimming anime. Uh, this is the eccentric family. It's basically about well, the main character is a tanuki, which for those of you who don't know is the Japanese dog fox. No, not dog fox, dog raccoon. Uh, it is, in fact, a different species of animal. It is not the same thing as... A tanuki is not the same thing as a western raccoon, nor is it the same thing as a dog. It is, in fact, its own species, but... So we're going to stick with tanuki. However, in the show, they do draw them. They do physically resemble western raccoons more than they resemble dogs. But genetically speaking, that's a whole different story. And is irrelevant because in the anime, the main character, he's a very cute raccoon. And Tanuki generally are known to have the powers to be able to transform themselves into have, like, different shapes. Uh, the most common folklore is actually um, to take, like, the shape of a kettle. Uh, there's another story where they take the form of, a, like, a Buddhist statue as they're trying to trick a priest. But just like, just like Kitsune, they can change themselves into human. And the main character, despite being a boy, spends the entire first episode dressed up as, like, a Japanese schoolgirl. Like, middle schoolgirl, I think. Or is she a high school girl? It doesn't matter, because the point is that the whole reason he's doing it is because he thinks it's funny and he can. <laughs> like, the whole setup is that there are, there are Tengu in the sky. Tengu human, are crow spirits. Humans on the ground. And humans are humans, and the two get to run around, run around with them, and they find life fascinating. Or especially this guy, he finds the whole like you know the actions of humanity are great. You know, interacting with Tengu, like like life is interesting, life is neat, and he's going to do his best not to get stuck in a hot pot. Yeah, like he doesn't understand people who get bored with life is basically the premise. Uh. In the first episode, we go ahead and reveal some of the major characters, being that his father is passed away, is, was a great tanuki who has passed away. Uh, he has His master is actually a, a tengu, and by master I just mean his teacher, who has apparently just been teaching him stuff, was a tengu who has been hurt and can no longer fly for various reasons. A human who was another student 
of the Tengu, who of the old man Tengu, who the old man Tengu has a crush on this hot young human girl, which is from what I'm given to understand happens. Um, <laughs> she, however, is human, and so is just absolutely relishing the power of, have, of being able to fly and not ha- have access to all this like Tengu and Tanuki crap all around. Is totally taking advantage of the situation. Um, then there's our main character, who is the third of four sons, and is generally regarded as being the fool's son. His oldest brother is desperately trying to keep the family in together. The mother believes that she is a prince. Not a princess, she is a prince. And she reigns over a pool hall somewhere in in Kyoto. Uh, and the uh, sec- the second uh, oldest brother had you know transformed himself into a frog so that he could be at the bottom of a well that's in a that's in one of the um reliquary areas of a Shinto of a Shinto shrine it's not exactly a cemetery but it's kind of like a cemetery area it, it's a place where people go to pray a lot and yeah. he said that there was he thought that there was no point in people going to pray if there wasn't somebody to listen so that's why he transformed himself into a frog but now he's stuck as the frog and he can't turn back into like a raccoon like he actually is and so he's stuck being a frog. and But he doesn't mind. And then the youngest brother is working for another raccoon family, but is a scaredy cat and gets scared of, like, dogs and, and cats and things all the time and has a hard time keeping his tail covered and is depicted as generally, like, a little, little kid. So in the midst of all of this, we have our main character who runs about and just generally has a good time. The last episode I saw, they got themselves a tea room and made it float so that they could watch, uh, the, there's a, there's a ceremony in Kyoto where they eat, where each of the mountains around Kyoto, they light on fire with a different character. Uh, and the Tanuki often take to the sky during that fest, part of the festival to see it from the sky and the family does that and it's. It's funny and comical, and it's it's charming and heartwarming and all of those awesome things. It is done by PA Works, and it's an adaptation of a light novel, or novel, I'm not sure which version, which kind of novel it is, light or not, but the idea to Tommy, to Tommy Galaxy. That must be why I like it. And it's, it's so it's really well written. And, I like that guy. And it really feels like, to me, like, I'm watching it, um, Tom, it feels like they saw Tommy Galaxy, well, like, those are great. That's a great way of trying to show that series, and I see a lot of similar stuff I do with eccentric family mm-hmm. scenes, similar to how they portrayed uh, to Tommy Galaxy, even though they were done by two different studios. Yeah. But now we go into our main event. It's the movie that all the other podcasts have already covered, but that's okay. We don't care. As the awesome cast, we must cover things that are awesome. Oh, can I tell you one more thing? No, because we have another podcast to do later. We need that. We need other stuff for too. No, no, no! Please let me tell you this one thing. Okay. Okay, I'm going to talk about another movie that's released in America. The Heat. Go on. <laughs> okay, for those of you who don't know, The Heat stars. Uh, it stars 
these two actresses, Sandra Bullock and another great actress. I don't know if she's that great of an actress, but she's very, very funny. Neither of us have seen this movie, so this one's all on you. I know, I know, I know. But, okay, it's basically a buddy cop movie. It, it's it's your it's your classic, odd pair. You know, you have Sandra Bullock is playing this straight-laced, uptight FBI agent who does everything by the book, and the other actress is playing this uh, rough-and-tumble, uh, rough-and-tumble, doesn't always play by the rules, but does what she's got to do to get the job done, like, beat cop. And the FBI agent's work takes her into the field where this beat cop works, and they, they team up, and it becomes your typical buddy cop movie after that point, uh, only with girls instead of guys. And it's pretty cool. But what was, what was awesome about this experience was not actually watching the movie. It was the fact that despite the fact that we had gone in to watch this movie, which I'm pretty sure is rated R, if not PG-13 is that we couldn't hear all the fucks and shits and gunfire and stabbing and people crying out in pain as they were wounded uh, for the screaming two- and three-year-olds that were also sharing the theater with us. And yeah, this family had decided to go out to see the movie and brought... Clearly these young, young, didn't know not to scream in the theater children to see this movie. And the usher had to, had to come in and actually ask them to take the screaming child out the first time. But then they kept trying to come back in and sure enough, like, the kid would burst into, like, screaming fits again. Like... It was just awful. Like, this is not actually a moment of awesome. This is the opposite of a moment of awesome. This is something so terrible. It went around the loop and came back the other way. It's actually kind of incredible that this actually happened. Is that somebody had a child screaming this loud in an R-rated movie. But the moment that was awesome was as we were leaving the theater after having had this experience... I turned to my husband and I said, so, so what was this movie rated anyway? When another couple behind us, the guy looked over at me and commented and said, I'm pretty sure it's R. And that was a wonderful, awesome bonding moment that we had with this couple that we had never met before as we just kind of exchanged jokes back and forth about the nature of this movie and how... It was completely inappropriate for a two-year-old and a three-year-old. Like, without ever actually saying, without ever actually mentioning the two and three-year-olds that were there. Mm. And so, thank you, bad parents, for allowing random couples to bond over your terribleness. This moment of, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Is brought to you by Doug. Because sometimes, hey, fuck you. <laughs> and now, the main event, the thing that we're not going to stop until we talk about it. Are you sure I can't talk about one more thing? Positive. Oh, man, okay. That's right. The movie you've heard about all before, and we're not going to shut up until we say it again. Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim. 
once upon a time, there was a director who was awesome and amazing, and he had a dream that one day giant monsters would fight with giant robots, and he'd make a movie, and it would be awesome. And it was. Pacific Rim, Gamble de Toro, epic, that is freaking epic. I feel it's the it's the one it's one of the few movies. There has been a several pretty decent and you know downright good blockbusters, but nothing is quite blockbustered like Pacific Rim blockbusters. Yeah, I don't think I have seen a movie by by Del Toro that I have not absolutely loved. Perhaps that he has made a movie that I would not like, but I have not seen it. Like it seems like everything uh, that he has done. I really, really like it, and I, I think I was talking about this with you after we were walking out, as we were walking out of the theater. It seems like a good chunk of it is that it seems like he gets it. It seems like whatever he sets his mind to make a movie to, like he actually gets it. He actually understands why people like this thing, and so he makes it as somebody who also understands. Not just to somebody who's trying to imitate or somebody who's trying to, like, cater to a specific audience, but as somebody who truly gets what it's about and is doing it. And that's kind of what Pacific Rim was like. Yes. Uh... I also think I said that watching Pacific Rim was a lot like watching uh, Red Line, where I came out of the theater feeling a little bit like I... Despite the fact that I don't smoke, feeling like I wanted to smoke a cigarette real quick and just lie back on the pillows and go, man, that was good. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh... Well, it was an excellent film. I mean, one of the best things I can say is I went to see it in the theaters twice. It's honestly pretty rare I see a movie in the theaters. This one I saw, and I went back again. <laughs> yeah, I was the same way, where I saw it, I'm like, oh man, this has to happen again. And I talked to Doug, and I, and I mentioned I already see it. I'm like, well, we don't have to go see it. Like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I need to go see this movie again. This is not, it'd be nice. No, this is a need. This is a very dire want. I, and man, it is better a second time. Yeah, I like, bet it is. It is one of those, it is one of those films that there is so much visual storytelling stuff going on that, again, much like Redline, you watch it a second time and you realize how much you missed the first time when you right. didn't even think you missed anything the first time. Right. Like, yeah. it's a really, really good repeat lot shower. Of, yeah, there's a lot of little background detail and lots of dialogue that doesn't necessarily make sense the first time through that you might not even remember. But as a whole, once you know things later in the movie, adds a little more depth to the whole thing. And so... And one of the things that I really do want to get across in our sort of talk, discussion, review, whatever we call these things, our awesome casting about Pacific Rim is that a lot of people are, like, it's kind of, there's like two sides of the marketing for this film. Like, on the actual marketing side, because anime is a dirty word, you don't see mentioning of anime or Japan, Japanese cartoons or anything at all when they market this film. Like... But, as I was leaving the theater, 
like, I saw that movie, I thought it was great, I thought it was fantastic, at the exact same time I could see exactly why my mother, for example, would have hated it. And it had nothing to do with the movie's own merits and flaws. It had to do with the fact that so much of it was so clearly, like, influenced by anime that I think my mother would have looked at it and gone, oh, this is just like those Japanese cartoons you always watch, and she would have completely just disengaged from it right then, not given it any chance, and would have left the theater hating it. But, meanwhile... All the fans of it are going, oh man, guys, it's so anime. And I I don't, well, I do not completely disagree. I don't quite agree. Like, this is very much, this is a film very influenced by Japanese cartoons, but also actual kaiju films. Yeah, there's a lot of Godzilla in this movie. A lot of Godzilla and Ultraman in this movie. But more than anything, it's a Del Toro movie. Yes, yeah. like, that is absolutely like, true. More than anything else, it is definitely informed by anime. It is definitely informed by you know the classic giant monsters of Japanese cinema. Um, but in the end, it's still his own take, his own thing. Well, okay. When I was seeing the previews for it, one of the things that I thought to myself was, "Oh man, so this is what they finally did with that live-action Ava movie that we've been talking that we've been hearing about is going to come out of Hollywood inevitably." Well, in actually watching it, I can see why I made the Ava par- the parallels to Neon Genesis Evangelion, but it is not actually anything like Neon Genesis no. Evangelion. Like the parallel, from what I determined, basically comes from the fact that you have large organic monsters, and you have large robots, and they're in the same work, blended together, and that is present in Ava as well, with, like, the Avas fighting the angels, but at the same time... It's still nothing like the no. Avas fighting the angels. Like, no. even even at all. Like, it actually is much more reminiscent of the older stuff of which Ava was a deconstruction. So if you yeah. look at it from the perspective of, okay, Ava was a deconstruction of this type of show. Then, and you also look at it as the fact of, and those shows that Ava was deconstructing were the shows that Del Toro looked at as a kid and thought oh, these yes. were awesome. Oh, yeah. And the wanted. Whole, the whole Go Nagai giant robot oeuvre was huge in every Spanish speaking country on Earth. Yeah, <laughs> and, and if you're a fan of giant robots, like you can pick out certain things. Like the one that I picked out is like one of my favorite little, little like robot fighting moments was. The moment where, like, the piston punch, where, like, the robot punches the monster, and then there's, like, an, an extra piston in its arm that, you know, throws down into for extra kick. Now, in actual physics, that doesn't make any sense why that would work, but in terms of, like, looking freaking awesome, it's something that looks really cool, and I think, like, Big O also did also as the same homage. Similar. Um, and, and it's also it was also sort of like a, the, the closest thing they had to like the rocket punch. Yeah, 
that you Well, know, there's two. The Gypsy Danger has kind of the rocket punch elbow rocket. Cherno right. Alpha has kind of almost a Botom-style scope dog, like, piston-driven Yeah, that's the one I was talking weapon, about. Which is, well, at least in Botom, it's like an explosively driven ram. Okay, but, well, that makes more yeah. sense physics from the physics perspective. And uh, in this, it was explained more as just like a piston, which is like, it's a piston that doesn't really make much more sense. But something I think, I know a lot of people have made the Ava reference, probably because that's the one thing that they understand. And I'm also wondering if, because this movie's doing very well internationally, but not nearly as well in the U.S., and I think a lot of it is... The Ava reference. Uh, well, contextualization, contextualization. Because in America, the super... I mean, there's two... Considered in anime, there are two more or less schools of thought on how to make a giant robot show, which is super robots and uh, real robots. Admittedly, some shows blend, blur the lines, and some fans get kind of defensive about the real super, real super. But <laughs> but overall, super robots don't give a damn about science or physics. In that, their primary thing is that they want to show something large and amazing and awesome. You know, now sometimes physics might still be in there, but really, you know, it's much more of a throw caution to the wind. Let's do what looks cool. Ava has one episode where there is a super robot or a real robot. But well, <laughs> the Ava is by Ava's a real robot show. Um, so, by, by sort it, of. Well, it's it's a deconstruction of real robot shows. I wouldn't Ooh. say it's so much a deconstruction of super robot shows. I don't know. I think kind of, well, this no, could I be a whole it's podcast. A, I think it's this more could a be a whole podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a deconstruction of a super robot show because the reason that I was saying it has one super robot, possibly one real robot, is that it has one robot. It has one giant robot, and that is it, it's a whole edi- episode dedicated to this one robot. It's called the thing that man made. And that's the only actual robot in the show. Sorry that I have just spoiled Ava for you, but there's only one actual robot in the whole goddamn show. And it doesn't work. (laughs) But the point I'm trying to actually make is that if you look at what people have seen in America overall, Mm -hmm. they they saw, you know, growing up, they saw Robotech. Yeah, the fact that... They saw... Transformers, which are the fact way that more I tech. just said that about Ava and that was a spoiler, is backing up what you're saying. Like they, they, you know, they saw Ava, which again is is still, well, it does look cool, but there's still a lot of they they tried a lot of science in there. Like it is more yeah, of a, there's some interesting science gets bandied around in there. Yeah, so, that's you know, true. But it's again, your real robots. The whole thing is to try and contextualize in a more realistic setting. It's way more, you know. It's a little bit more science fiction, whereas super robots are a little bit more science or, you fantasy. Know, even Gundam Wing is definitely more on the real end of things. Right. It's you know, and I and I feel that that was more of a political drama than anything. Yeah. We're all so used to in America seeing all this real robot stuff, and we never really got the super robot stuff that really proliferated in. In like the Gona Guy stuff that, that did get in the Spanish speaking countries that does form, you know, Del Toro's, you know, background. And so a lot of that really comes through with Pacific Rim. But you know, that said, and one of his other primary influences is Pat Labor, which is way more on the realistic side mm-hmm. than the super side. 
and I think you see that influence also in Pacific Rim because everything moves like it should. Yeah. Like everything looks like it works like it should, like the gears, you know, turn when they should turn and when the things, you know, the, how they, you know, pad with the armor of the robots. That was one of the things I loved. Like I would never have thought of it myself. In designing a giant robot, but they did think of it on the gypsy, and it was it, it was brilliant. Is that the the robot had these little like you almost wouldn't even notice them, but they were like these little like sheets that came up and just kind of hung hung over its shoulders a little bit. Yeah, they're like they're to protect the neck, where like the head is actually detachable. It's to help yeah. protect the neck. Well, but like I saw it several instances, like. It's also acting as a shock absorber. Yeah. Because anything comes down, it hits that metal plate and gets absorbed and dispersed over that metal plate before it hits the second metal plate that's acting as the body shield, that's acting mm-hmm. as the primary body shield, which is what's probably directly covering sensitive, like, yeah. functional parts. So, oh, there are several scenes in the movie where I'm thinking, okay, objectively, I'm like 99.9% sure this is a cg object but it got all the details of if it was a guy in a suit or a yeah or a complex model yeah like it one of the things i loved about this movie was how well it kept its sense of scale and placement like these were giant okay a lot of times in a lot of times in some other of the giant robot movies that have been out re- recently, uh, namely the Transformers movies, you don't actually see a lot of the fight in real time. You see it super slowed down. You see, like... Or super sped up. Yeah. yeah. Or super shaky. Yeah. You know, shaky cam. Um, shaky cam would go to hell. I'm going on the record now. <laughs> but... But in this, you know, the camera stays still. You actually see the fight as if it were two guys in suits, but they're not two guys in suits. Um, and it constantly is doing things to remind you of the scale that it is constantly maintaining. Like, one of my favorite scenes was a scene where, like, the robot's arm gets, like, flung through a building. And you actually see, and, like, it actually gives you, like, a small little, like, show of that arm being flung through the building. And, like, the bare knuckle of this giant robot coming in contact with, like, a desk. And then, like, the arm getting pulled back out, and now you're back in the giant robot fight again. Like, I guess at this point, since we're already, you know, almost 15 minutes into this, we haven't actually said the plot of this film. Um... The basics are, one day a fissure, uh, a rift, a tear in dimensions, you know, happened in the Pacific Rim, where giant monsters came out and started wrecking shit, and conventional, you know, weaponry was not working. Yeah, the first one, after days and days of trying to kill it with conventional weapons, and after it had wrecked several cities... They finally took it down. They made, they started construction, and this is a bit of where they hand waved the science, which is what puts it into the super robot category rather than the real robot category. Is they said the world's greatest scientists came together to make these giant robots, the Jaegers, which Jaeger is uh, German for hunter. 
kind of gives me the implication that a lot of the people developing the robots were German, but... Probably. Um, well, it's hard to... Okay, I, I've actually... I have actually have read the novelization. Oh, <laughs> uh, have you? And, yeah, pretty... Like, I'm not sure, you know, stuff that's not explicitly said in the movie maybe necessarily canon from the novel, but, yeah, it was mostly Germany and Japan uh, where most of the uh, the brain power behind it in America was most of the money and resources. Ah, <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. And the uh, giant monsters are kaiju, call them like you see them. Now that is actually the point where people who sit there and go, this is so anime, that is probably the least anime thing about it, which might seem strange to somebody who's actually not very well versed in anime, or even to somebody who is decently well versed in anime. The thing is, is that when Japan goes to name their giant monsters, they generally don't name them kaiju. (laughs) They generally pick some other name like uh kevin can you back me up here on this because uh like i know in ava like they named the giant monsters well, yeah, angels. angels um uh but they're, they're, they have a name but i mean but kaiju is a genre yeah kaiju, kaiju is, is a, a genre. genre that's where you get your godzillas your gamras your rodans yeah, like kaiju <laughs> is is the genre of giant monsters but the giant monsters themselves are you know typically get given a different name Yes. Like, within the context of the series. Like, like, Attack on Titan, they're they're titans, they're not kaiju. Mm-hmm. You know. They're all... titans. Well, yeah, you can call it, the titans could certainly be classified as kaiju. Well, they, in a way they are. They're much more human-like than your average kaiju. But, like, you know, in Sailor Moon, the, the Yoma. Yeah. Like, or in Power Rangers, again, the Yoma. <laughs> You know, in general, Japan doesn't actually name their giant monsters giant yeah. monsters. Oh, I'm so bl- I'm trying. To, I'm so blanking on the monsters from Godanner because if there's an anime that is actually honestly a lot like Pacific Rim, it's Godanner. Yeah. Especially with like the pairs of pilots. Yeah. Um, and they also do it very similarly, where it's usually like either couples. Or... Yeah, they're they're usually couples or siblings or. People who are, for some reason, really close. Well, and that's one of the things is that, you know, they, they develop these giant robots, the Jaegers, but they discover that one person cannot handle the stress of their interface yeah. alone by themselves. Yeah, they have a kind of a direct brain connection to help. Well, one Move. assumes to help smooth out all the little things the human body normally does with balance and walking. Yeah. And so they developed this the thing called they call the drift where it takes two people and sort of syncs them up so they can share the load of information that is happening to them when they're piloting yeah. these giant robots because with one pilot it either won't work at all or quickly it starts inflicting bad neurological damage and yeah. just, as it turns out either like really f- close family or you know couples tend to make you know some of the best Combinations because those are you know existing units that are already somewhat in sync, so it's much easier for them to. They have strong. They have a strong bond anyway, so it's less jarring when their minds are suddenly thrown together because there's already a strong bond yeah. that exists. And that's a big thing with it. The more, the better you mesh when you're using the the, the neural bridge, the, the the drift. The more you mesh, the better you fight, and it's less important that you're even that you're well-coordinated or strong or athletic than just you mesh well with your partner. 
Well, part of it does come does boil down to if you mesh well with your partner, whatever athletic ability you do have is going to better translate than yes. somebody who is super athletic but doesn't have that. But suffice it to say, they come up with this idea. They bash together some giant robots, and, you know, things start going good. I mean, this is actually all in a very quick prologue in the film, where they yeah. set up... Yeah. You find this out within, like, five or six minutes, so cool. this isn't really yeah. spoiled. Well, we Guillermo, have spoiled nothing yeah. yet. Well, your del Toro does not waste time with backstory. He gets you caught up to where you need to be for the story to go really fast and very concise and well done. And so, our main character is a guy named... Raleigh Beckett, who has a pretty cool name, just not nearly the coolest name in the movie, because this movie is full of this people movie cool is names. full of cool names. <laughs> yeah, and he is a he's a pilot who was piloting a Jaeger, but stuff happens, and he doesn't really want to pilot anymore until you know, st- you know, Stacker Pentecost, which isn't the running for coolest name ever in this film. You know, who is the sort of his was his commander, and pretty much the guy who runs the Jaeger program at this point needs him to come back and start kicking butt again because things are happening, things are finally hitting the fan. It's do or die, and he needs him to do and not die. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go ahead, and I don't care if this is the spoiler section or not, but the reason for why he needs him to come back is basically that. The governments of the world have decided to scrap the Jaeger project and just build a giant yeah. wall and hide behind that. Yeah, the because Jaegers that have, always yeah. works against giant yeah. things. Because the Jaegers have been losing lately, they're down to not a whole many pilots, and they think the giant wall is impenetrable and perfect. Yeah, because I, I just find that hysterical. Just like, it seems like this idea has drifted around that Giant things are attacking humanity. Humanity will just build a giant wall and keep it out. Like, <laughs> well, I, I found it a really interesting, you know, scene because that's, you know, that's see that feels very government where, oh, this one thing we're doing was working really well. Now it's not. Well, instead of making it work, let's just scrap the whole thing and try something else completely different. Who knows if it'll work or not? We're just going to throw money at it. My constituents yeah. who have no idea of the real situation tell me a giant wall is great. <laughs> but regardless, you know, Pentecost is having none of it, and he's going to do something crazy and stupid, and it's totally going to work once I figure out how to make it work. And so he convinces Raleigh to, to come back and meet these other pilots before they do their crazy mission. And of course, while they're getting ready for this crazy mission, more robo- more giant monsters attack. And so there has to be more fights of giant robots. And that's pretty much the vehicle of the movie. Like, the movie is really about, you know, humanity's, you know, fight against these giant monsters, which necessitates fights with giant robots. And wouldn't that be awesome to see? Oh, hey, yeah, yeah, okay, it really is awesome to it, see, It guys. is awesome to All see. All right, you're, you're, you're right, Del Toro, you're right. This, this is pretty awesome. Yeah, he, he was correct. That was pretty awesome. Um, like... One of the things that we kind of were talking about before we were actually doing the podcast was it seems like the movie is not doing well in America. It's not doing well in America. It's 
I guess just based on numbers, it's doing okay, but not for a movie with as big of a budget it had. Well, it's it's killing it worldwide. Like yes. worldwide, it's number one. Oh yeah, well, worldwide it's doing. But great. in America, it's not doing particularly well. Its only real comfort is that nothing's really doing particularly well in America, except for you know Despicable Me Two, which is a children's movie, which is a children's CGI movie. That like, I mean, that one was just about guaranteed. People liked the first one, so. Like, that was just about guaranteed to make money unless it was utterly terrible. Like, children's yeah. children's CGI movie, that, that ought to make you money. Uh, so everything is pretty much failing. Uh, but Pacific Rim is particularly failing. Um, as we were, le- again, as we were leaving the theater, one of the things I overheard was um, a kid, lo- like, uh, as we were leaving the theater... There was, like, a mother and child looking at the movie posters trying to decide on what movie to go see. And uh, the little girl going, uh, what's Pacific Rim? And the mother going, oh, no, sweetie, we that's science fiction. We don't need to see that. That was actually a tweet I mentioned about Daryl Dar- Surratt said. Like, he saw that. No, I saw that. Okay, well, then it really isn't, that really is happening. That is that happening. Like, that is not a one-time thing. Like, that is something that is happening. Like, and it's sad. Yes, because more little girls need to see giant robot movies. I'm 100% serious about that. <laughs> well, that's true too, Kevin. But, but I think the greater point that more people, especially little kids, need to see science yes, fiction. Yeah, I, like, I can extend that well, to all genders. I would uh, even go as far as to say is I find that there is a disturbing movement of anti-intellectualism within our nation. Yes. And that is what I find disturbing and needs true. to be stamped out. That does uh, make me... Like, no, sweetie, that's science fiction. That's not for us. To me, that says anti-intellectualism and that bothers me. Like, now, it's true, I don't... With the with the case I saw, I don't know if they just decide they don't like science fiction and maybe they're smart in other ways, but, you know, maybe they like other science, they just don't like science fiction. I don't know. But all I saw was, no, sweetie, that's science fiction. That's not for us. Yeah. And I'm sure that actually had to stink extra hard considering you were sort of like, biologist and yeah being a biologist which by the way that was actually my favorite character in the whole movie uh if you could do me a favor basil and look up the character's actual name because i just called him charlie uh because yeah the actor charlie day he plays charlie in uh newt something it's newton uh geisler Yes. Ah, Newton yeah. Again, awesome yeah. name. Call him oh, Newt. Yeah. And, and by the way, this takes place their their headquarters. They call it the Shatter Dome. Yeah. It's called the Shatter Dome. Apparently, there were several Shatter Domes, plural, at one point. <laughs> well, Newton Geisler is was my personal favorite character in the whole movie. He's not actually even a pilot of one of the robots. He's a biologist who started studying the kaiju. And he actually uses he he he's played by the same actor that plays Charlie from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Hence why I called him Charlie. Um, yeah, I, and it's basically the same character, only plus about a hundred IQ points. Um, I liked his friendly rival, mathematician. Yes, friend. his friendly <laughs> rival, the mathematician friend, was the same guy who was kind of the smarmy guy 
from uh, Torchwood. Yeah, Heinrich something with the character. Yeah, so so the two of them palling around. Most brilliant combination, yes. by the way. Oh, yeah, they, they figure out everything. They're vital to the plot. They like, figure out so much. <laughs> oh, man, but... But, so Newt... You know, being a biologist myself, I absolutely adored Newt. I absolutely adored it when, like, he... he the mathematician gave these hard, like, numbers, and the biologist goes, Yeah, but those are just predictions you can't actually know. Give me the thing to let me know. And, of course, the military dude looks at the biologist and goes, and just kind of doesn't say anything. And his silence as he turns and walks away is just the implied no that the biologist is probably expecting. And so the biologist does what any biologist does and finds whatever scrap he can to do it anyway. Because that's what biology people do, is they just dig into stuff because it's there and it's neat and we just want to know. <laughs> and the other guy, was actually, his name was actually Herman uh, oh. Gottlieb. Herman, Herman, yeah. Herman. Yeah. Herman and Newt. They were... They were brilliant. They were an interesting little tag team. Oh, they, they, they were amazing. Well, there, there were several great tag teams. Like, one of the saddest things about this film is because... They only had so much time. Yeah. The uh, the you know there were a total of four sets of pilots for four giant robots, and we only got to really know uh, the Gypsy Danger and the um, the Eureka for the uh, guys from um, Australia. Australia. Yeah, Eureka Striker. Yeah, Eureka Striker. And we never got to see the awesome like you know Russians and the awesome Chinese guys. Yeah, the Chinese guys. They Russian, are... were they? The Cherno Alpha, they were two Russians. Oh, I... I, uh, I a married they, couple, actually, although the movie never points it out. I thought they were Swedish for some reason. Yeah. Maybe just because I like Norway and so yeah. I want everything to be they were from Russians. that region of the world. They were <laughs> Russians and uh, kind of some offhand comments make me think that either them or people connected with them were responsible for a lot of the stuff they actually had at the Shatterdome. Because <laughs> they said they could get anything from the Russians. But, uh, yeah, like the Russians... Most of their characterization is just through presence, because they're big and blonde and awesome looking. Well, there's not enough time in the movie. Yeah. But they do, and this is a, one another case of Del Toro being really great at visual storytelling, was that I noticed them in every scene they were in. Yeah. And they're always doing something. Mm-hmm. Like, whether it's the, you know, the, the wife, you know, you're, you know, showing dominance over, you know, her husband and, and as main character guy is walking by. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, you know, saying, hey, I'm the one in charge. He's my man. He's not your man. Step off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, she, I like that she was kind of the lead in the they were, they were, mecha team. They were, they were always, you know, looking, you know, like, that. yeah, we're badass. It's cool. Yeah, we're badass. And then, you know, the Chinese guys were doing the same thing. You know, their big thing was they play basketball. They were playing together. basketball all the time. But sadly... But, as the movie set in Hong Kong, they blended into the background a little more because a lot of the... I don't think they did. I thought they stood out pretty well. Like, they were good because they were kind of wearing the red jumpsuits. And well, that's was. probably why they stood out. But, yeah. I like, which is good because since the movie's set in Hong Kong, there's a, this, there's a lot of Asians in the background. And I'm not saying all Asians look alike because they don't. But when you have a big crowd of Asians, it's like, oh, wait, there's the, there's the Chinese pilots. There they are. You know. <laughs> but sadly, we get, you know, like I said, we get Raleigh and... Um... Girl's name Mako, Mako yeah, Mori, Mako Mori, you know them, and then the the Hansons, yeah, Herc like, and Chuck Hansen, yeah. the uh, Australians. Although I had to point out that Herc Hansen, the, the the father, the actor's name is Max Martini, 
which could have been a name in this film anyways. <laughs> and it's Hercules Hansen is his full name. Uh, so this is, this is a this is awesome and cool name the movie, uh, amongst other things. You know, there's another character you meet later on named Hannibal Chow. Yeah. Who? Well, now he like they outright say we, 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 we don't want to. We don't want to say. Oh. Like we, yes. we we will have a spoiler <laughs> section. I promise. Oh. And we will talk because there's a lot about this film. Like I first thought, well, do we really need a spoiler section? Uh, we do. And after thing, like like within seconds, I'm like no, no, we gotta have a spoiler section because there's a whole lot of things that I want to discuss that that are spoilers yeah. because there's a whole lot of things that you know visually are really important to this film that if you start trying to start explaining and delving into yeah. you are going to like I held back some of my newt love and and how and how I love that character so much uh because I'm waiting for the spoiler section to flip out about that <laughs> but I, I do want to say before we get into it because you know we're already 30 minutes into the on spoiler section so I want to give you know, enough time for the spoiler section too um, a lot, a lot of the complaints I, I do hear is things like how the script is like simplistic and not people have enough character and and I just don't know if we're watching the same movie. Like, like I really don't, and it might be because I've picked up on some of the visual cues since I've seen it twice, and I've read some other things that help me pick out more visual cues. But everything, and I. My assumption really is, it's not so much that the script is, it, it is simple, but it's not badly written. It is, it is, it is straight, it's very it's to earnest. To the point. It's mm. to the point and very earnest. And this is a very earnest film, and I think if you tried to punch it up too much, it would actually lose something and not gain something. But I kind of feel that this is one of the few films, one of the few blockbusters I've seen, that wasn't trying to be the Avengers. Like... I saw Star Trek Into Darkness, and there was a lot of quippiness going around between all the characters. It's kind of that Whedon-esque uh, you know, dialogue. Iron yeah. Man was full of it, which makes sense. It's oh, Iron no, that Man. That works for Iron Man. And, that's, and, yeah. it, and even its storyline is a direct consequence of the Avengers. Yeah. Yeah, but even watching you know, Fast and Furious 6. Oh, and uh, which, don't forget... Don't forget uh, R.I.P.D., which is basically... So we really wanted to make... Uh, so we wanted to we really Men wanted to make again. Men in Black again, only we wanted to make it a little bit more quippy. But that's Fast, saying something. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I'll point out that Fast Six did the quippy really good, and of all the films, like that film nailed it the best, and honestly, almost nailed it as good as the Avengers did. Like I, I we, I don't know if I'll do a podcast about because I'm the one that loves that series, but Man Fast Six was a great movie. But, I've heard a lot of positive comments on that, even from people who don't like the franchise as a whole. But, you know, this is about Pacific Rim, yeah. and one of the things I really liked was how not quippy this film was. It felt like, you know, it was very much its own creature. And I really, really well, enjoyed that part. Okay, wasn't there a guy who published a thing of basically how to make a movie? How to make a blockbuster summer hit movie? And... Every other movie, aside from this movie, basically follows that blueprint that that guy laid down to a T, with the exception of Pacific Rim, despite the fact that that guy who wrote, like, How to Make the Summer Blockbuster Movie blueprint said, now, don't do every movie like this or else they'll all suck. Well, 
I I know what you're talking about, and I've yet to read the article or the book about it. So I even can't say the Pacific Rim bucks it or anything. It, it may not. I'm yeah. not sure. But, you know, at least compared to the other blockbuster films I've seen this year, I feel it at least bucks those movies. Yeah. And I'm wondering if, if it's because it's because it's bucking what's popular that might be why it's not popular. Is yeah. instead of oh well this is a nice bre- you know breath of fresh air. It's yeah. more well that's not what it's I It's also honestly not gotten nearly as much advertisement as some other blockbuster. I don't know what you're gotten. talking about. I was before I went to go see the movie that entire day before I went to go see it. I was bombarded like every commercial break. Really? I yeah. I somehow maybe I'm just not right, watching the right channels. But, but um, <laughs> Comedy Central, Cartoon Network, and the Hub, which would <laughs> be those some of the best We're stations probably, to. Yeah. Of course, I, I do but, uh, uh, my best to avoid trailers whenever possible nowadays. Yeah, I watched every single trailer before it on the internet because I could, they because trailers can't help but spoil everything that's yeah. good. And decent in the world. Yeah, so. like I watched every single trailer and every single like little thing Guillermo del Toro wanted to put up about the movie because I'm following this since it's been in pre-production. Well, but, uh, I do want to say I do want to say this about about the movie in regard to simplicity, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and that there is a difference between being sim- being simple and being dumbed down. If this movie is absolutely one hundred percent not dumbed down like again i loved newt i loved the biologist um i love the mathematician and while i don't know as much about the math or i don't know much as much about the engineering i do know a lot about biology and i do know that everything that they attempted to assert with the biology portion with that biology character was uh it was it was pretty sound. Like it was pretty sound stuff. Like he was researching yeah. in a pretty like I wouldn't say typical method, but he was researching in he was researching and following leads and everything followed a model that is realistic in concept. So this was not a movie that was that was stupid in any me- by any means. By any stretch no, of the imagination, no. this was not a stupid movie, but it was simple. It didn't have a lot of quick, you know, quick, witty, like, turns of phrase. It didn't have, like, it had a few pl- it had a few t- plot twists and turns, but it didn't have any that were, like, super ulterior motive underlying that totally, like, <laughs> it didn't have, it didn't have, like, oh gosh, who was that director <laughs> oh, uh, who made Sixth Sense? What's a twist? Yes. I... It didn't have a twist! Yeah. It... Pretty much had the ending that it should have had. Uh, which, I don't know if that's a spoiler or not, since I'm not actually telling you what the ending it should have had was. Simply that it didn't have, like, this giant convoluted twist where you suddenly realize that everything that you thought before was wrong. M. Night Shyamalan. That's, that's the it. Guy. <laughs> it didn't have a Shyamalanian, like, twist to it. No, and that's a good thing. It was uh. pretty much straightforward. It was what it was. Like Basil said, all the characters were earnest in what they said. It was actually kind of simple in that respect. Um, but it actually, it was almost to the point where, like, when you realize what they did in order to achieve that simple elegance, I feel like the elegance of their simplicity is going under, understated, unnoticed, and unappreciated. 
And I did notice that we've spent almost 40 minutes talking about this film, and we never really got into how awesome the fights are. We talked a little about the scale. Yeah. But we haven't talked about how awesome the fights are, and all the fights are really awesome. Yeah, the fights are incredible. <laughs> I think it almost goes without saying that the fights are awesome. Like, it's almost not worth talking about just because it's so obvious that they're so awesome. <gasps> I mean, yeah, I mean, there's specifics aren't really maybe necessary, but I mean, no, it's... And we were talking about the scale. All the action is no shaky cam. You can... Even you can actually see the fight. Even though sometimes they're dark environments, you can see the creatures, you can see the robots. It's clear what they're doing. It seems like a lot of fights in the beginning kind of happen, like, where the robots are, like, up to their knees in ocean water, and so there's, like, half half on land, half half in water battles. And then they have a bunch of land battles where they're colliding through buildings, but you can still keep a sense of, like, where everything is, and and you can really tell where everything is happening, it's almost like watching Cloverfield, only you actually get to see the monster. <laughs> <laughs> and the monsters look cool. Yeah. Know, and, the monsters you know, and the robots. They all they all look cool. And, and also, I've heard you know, people say, like, well, I don't feel the monster has much personality. And my real response is, go watch that again. Because the they don't have a ton of personality, but it's there. But each monster like, is unique. Yeah, each monster does have a unique personality. And they all they're unique. They have a gimmick. They've you know they they have a unique shape. Well, sometimes they'll like look at the guys and they'll snarl as they yeah. all little. There's they've got yeah they got really, attitude to the way they move and look. I really noticed it the second time watching it. That's mm-hmm. why I said as I really noticed the monsters way more in the second yeah. viewing than I did in the first. Yeah, I, and but the Leatherbacks have a big of a more brutish thug in the way it moves and fights. The the Otachi's a little more fast and nimble and gonna like hit you where you're not looking. You know, it's. But I think we've covered a lot of the reasons that we really like this movie, and so I think we're going to take a small break and move straight into spoilers. spoilers then stop the hell you're still doing here pause Uh, this go watch the movie come back hopefully it's still in theaters hopefully because i actually do feel like this is a movie where i think you're going to lose something by not seeing it in the theater yeah this is a big screen movie it's you know but man is it going to be pretty on blu-ray oh Oh, yeah yes yes like I, i i really do think that unless you have like a a theater set up in your home you're going to lose something when you see this movie uh, at home versus in the theaters because it is such on a grand scale. Like, because you just need to be surrounded by the scale that this movie is. And about how rich sometimes the colors can get. Because this is a movie where, even though there's a lot of grays and a lot of browns and a lot of, like, you know... You know, stormy gray waters. There's also when he uses color, he uses color incredibly 
well. It's really there and it's bright and it's 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 awesome. Like there's a definite contrast there. Yeah, like the kaiju all have this like if they don't have a bioluminescent part to them, then absolutely when they get hit and they bleed, they have like uh, almost this effervescent uh, color to their skin. They have this very like deeply blue skin, you know, some, uh, deeply blue blood, something that would be much more common in something much more reptilian or amphibian, or would be something you would expect from a prehistoric large uh, super amphibian. And most of them do have some kind of bioluminescence or emits some kind of something emits light, even like it seems, even like their saliva or the inside of their mouth. And one of the things that um, I read online that brought attention to me was uh, it was this guy a story about a guy who his girlfriend um, doesn't process. Um, she processes visuals like most of us process language, mm-hmm. and so she noticed a lot of things on the one watch of the movie that he never did. Uh, for example, I feel that one of the most of the defining scenes in this film that really shows us how great a storyteller that Del Toro can really be is the flashback scene. Yes. Where we learn about Mori's backstory and how they use that to sort of explain both her character and Pentecost. Where, you know, one of the things you notice about Mori is that she's got, you know, blue-tinted hair. You know, first it's, oh, well, that's so anime, but really, it's this, you notice it's the same color blue that's the kaiju blood. Yeah. And I noticed that re- pretty quickly off. Well, if you look at the the, uh, the flashback scene, it's also the color of her coat. It's that same blue as the color of her coat when she's walking through the ruins of Tokyo, clutching her red, her super bright red, red shoe that a Del Toro said is more like, is representative of her heart. Mm-hmm. She's holding her heart in her hand. And that super, super red amidst everything, that bright blue coat amidst everything, it's just this great scene of color. And it's, you know, so whether it's the memento of her childhood of that scene, it was that color of her hair, or it's that kaiju blood that she's seeking vengeance with for, mm-hmm. you know, to take out the kaiju because they destroyed her family, everything she held dear until she met Pentecost and who he saved her. You know, and how, like, when he steps out of his, you know, his Jaeger, like, he's lit like Jesus. He is. Pretty much. He's got you yellow, know. he's got yellow, yellow, yellow sun backlighting. Like, you know, this this so many uses of color that he uses constantly in this film that if once you start paying attention, it's it's really, it's neat and it's there. And it's a way more, it's more of a, it's a more of a meaty film than you might realize at first glance because you don't know what to look for. Again, very similar to Red Line. Like a lot of the same reasons I like Red Line are also in this film. Like the only thing I think Red Line did way better than fortunately then this movie did was it did a real good job of really endearing you to all the bonus characters, all the yeah. You know, the, not the mainline characters, but all the sub-characters. I still like everyone in Red Line pretty equally, whereas in this film, they, you know, for whatever reason, shove way more importance only onto a few. 
Yeah. Which, you know, this is a different movie. You never think it doesn't yeah, have to be yeah. like Red I mean, Line, you know, but... it's, The focus is obviously going to be on our protagonists and the, the Striker Eureka pilots. Is, the Striker Eureka is kind of our backup supporting hero robot. So. Well. Well, they're actually presented as they're the top yeah. dog. Yeah. In fact, they our, are presented as they're the newest, They're the shiniest. top dog, yeah. whereas our main character is the underdog because, of course. Everybody likes rooting for the underdog. Yeah. Like. yeah, the Striker Eureka is the latest, newest, shiniest Jaeger. The last, the last one they've built, the fastest, the best. Yeah, and so of course it's you know the supporting hero. But uh... <laughs> so of course it's the supporting hero rather than the hero. <laughs> yeah. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> yes. Uh... Of course, is that to me that really that, that, that that's another thing that really feels a little less. A little less anime, honestly, mm-hmm. because if this was anime, I think it would it, they would have shifted gears on us. I think it would have been the newest, the newest, greatest, best. Not the it's not even not it's it's not even the oldest. It's like no. something in the, it's something in the middle. Yeah, it's yeah, a, you know, yeah, like the 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 like the, the first, Russians, the yeah, Turno the, Alpha. That's supposed to be one of the first generations, right? And but and it's still in service and it's kind of awesome, but it's you know it's old. The Gypsy is kind of in the middle. Yeah, I think it was the it's a, Mark it's a th- III. Th- yeah, it's yeah. a third generation. And I can't remember if the uh, the Striker Eco was a Mark V or Mark VI, it Mark but v. it was something yeah. like that. You know, and it was like it was just fresh off the line before they decided they were going to build in giant robots and build stupid walls. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I really think you know that dichotomy is actually sort of that describes Pacific Rim pretty well for me in the scale of how. American quote unquote is it how anime quote unquote is it? I feel this movie is in fact somewhere in the middle. Yeah, yeah. like I, I feel that is there is a lot of there's a, I feel there's a lot of Top Gun influence in this film a bit on how they treat all their you know originally the Jaeger pilots like yeah how the Jaeger stars. pilots do kind of have that swaggering ace pilot kind of feel some of them anyways well, yeah. especially like you know um, Chuck Hansen yeah the, the yeah the yeah. son where he's he's very much you know. Man, doesn't he wish he was Tom Cruise? Yeah, and even uh, like <laughs> even Raleigh and his 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 co-pilot in the prologue, his brother, have that kind of feel at first. Right. When you first meet them, they're like, "Oh, we're the two badass brothers. You know, nothing can stop us." You know. But I feel that if this was truly anime, we would, we would the newest Grace Best would be the thing that you would get. Like that would be the main character, and maybe it's a case of they might have flipped it such that. Maybe that you know, if you switch position of the Gypsy Danger and the you know, the Eureka Striker, um, maybe we would have had you know, that's a that's a tried and true you know Mark Three. We know this is going to work. It's going to pack that payload. But this new thing would be the best thing to be the support unit. Yeah, maybe that's what they would do. But you know, I do feel it is a one of those things where it sort of deviates from purely quote unquote anime. Yeah, it's. It's not exactly anime, but like, like I was saying, like you can tell when De- Del Toro gets something, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. when he actually gets it, and and so he does it correctly. It's not that it's yeah. anime; it's that he pro- probably, honestly, genuinely likes the things that anime fans like. Well, yeah, and I think he did that as I a big budget was... movie, yeah, and did incredibly well. And so that's what people, I think, people are saying. Oh, it's so anime is because it does such a great job. 
taking that inspiration oh, yeah. and reinterpreting that in a live action setting. Well, even at really the end well. of the even at the end of the credits, there's like the very special thanks to Ray Ray Harryhausen and Ishiro uh-huh. Honda. Ray Harryhausen being the king of stop motion monsters and Ishiro Honda being one of the creators of Godzilla. Yeah. And that's I think is really where he's coming from from his inspiration. I mean there's obviously some anime inspiration. Oh, but. I loved okay. I loved how like they even made a reference to the fact that the, the the giant monsters, the kaiju, are so big that they have to have, like, a secondary brain outside of the skull just to control their giant movements. Like, oh, I love that inclusion of that little detail. And, like, when they actually are, they, they're cutting it open, they have to fill the body with nitrogen. So, like, people have to walk in, like, these space astronaut suits yes. inside to the monster in order to harvest, like, the little bits and pieces of it. You know, they're actually sitting there going, what's that sound? It sounds like a heartbeat, but the thing's dead. We already removed its heart. And, like, they go, oh, my God, it's pregnant. Like, it was so amazing. It was so awesome. Like, uh, and, and, and there was also, like, the comparison of, like, when, of, like, when the guy was talking and he was kind of like, actually, this seems a lot like something that we've seen before. When I look at their biological systems, it's much more like the bloody blah, 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 uh, basically boils down to, you know, they, they wouldn't actually live in what we would consider an ideal environment. Part of the reason that they're so toxic is because they come, they, they would live in a more yeah. toxic environment. Yeah. And we've basically terraformed the planet for them by pollution. They mentioned ammonia enough times that you think it's vital to their body chemistry. Uh, what they actually are referencing is the fact that the atmosphere when the dinosaurs were around was vastly different from the atmosphere that we are breathing now. It was much higher in nitrogen content. It was much higher in ammonium content. Uh, <laughs> higher oxygen content. Uh, yes, that too. <laughs> but, uh, lower, much lower CO2. Yeah. Uh, but the CO2 was actually in the water making it more acidic. And so... Seems like most of the gunk that, and most of the gunk that comes out of the kaiju's are highly, either highly acidic or highly mm-hmm. toxic or both. Well, yeah, they make a big point about that. I mean, just like, killing them inland apparently poisons the environment for miles. You know? Yeah, like, well, it, it, it's a big industry is having to clean up after the kaiju, um, a- after the kaiju after the battles are over. And in fact, uh, there's one character, Hannibal uh, Chow. He has been given exclusive rights to, uh, he's been given exclusive rights to fund the, to do all the cleanup and they won't ask any questions about where all the kaiju stuff goes because he sells it on the black market. (laughs) Uh, you know, because people think that it has various medicinal properties that it does not actually Uh, have. I love the, the one place, I kind of wish we got to see inside the church that was apparently built inside a kaiju skull. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I wish we'd gotten to see inside that. But, but uh, uh, oh man, but, okay, so Hannibal, uh, Han- Hannibal, um, Hannibal Chow, as it turns out, is not actually from Hong Kong. <laughs> or, and his name is not actually Hannibal Chow. It's Ron Perlman. I yes! Mean. <laughs> it's just Ron Perlman. Uh, he picked the name because Hannibal was his favorite figure from history, and Chow was his favorite uh, was his favorite restaurant, and he just combined the two and set out on business. Been his street name ever since. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fantastic. It is so amazing. Yes, and he's he's vital to the story. Surprisingly, yeah, um, gets eaten, comes out okay. <laughs> that's almost a spoiler within a spoiler. You gotta wait for the stinger. <laughs> 
I will say though, I think this also this movie does a really great job of world building. Yeah, like because even, even in the like the first like the, the first five or six minutes, you know, as you know, Raleigh is explaining everything, like uh, like the scene of like the museum piece where they're they're looking at like the big skull and how dark and oppressive it is, and mm-hmm. all the news footage and how people re- are also reacting in the you know, in, in the in the bone Hong Kong city and the fact that there was a church built out of a you know, kaiju skull. I mean, just so many different details, and the, everything's felt so lived in. Mm-hmm. Like I never felt like it's a lot of the movies like this would be like super shiny and new. Yeah. Obviously, this was dirty. This was gritty, and you just did a real good job of mixing like you know actual people doing things and CG, and ah, it was great. Oh yeah, and like all the like in the sh- the shadow dome looked well used. Yeah, like nothing in there was shiny and new. It was all. Very well used. Some of it looked like it was kind of pieced together with whatever worked. You know? And I really liked how the Jaeger, especially with the, um, you know, the, all, but especially we saw a lot of Gypsy Danger where, you know, it wasn't just a Noro interface. Like, they actually had to also do movements. They actually had to move around and, and move punches and, you know. Yeah, follow like, the body movement. Right. It was like, it was, you know, and I felt that was important because, you know, just having that Noro leak wasn't enough. Oh, like yeah. those, obviously, you had to do more of this oh, than just yeah. You know, the cockpit sets were great because I, I actually know from looking at stuff that was all practical. They built that big cockpit and tied those actors up in there and danced around like puppets. It was great. <laughs> yeah. They threw water on them. They made sparks shoot out all over the place. They shook it around. There's many moments where it looked like the act, where it looked like the pilots were on like treadmills as they're you know going trudging through. Yeah. And also, the, the, the things are so big, they need two brains. I'm just saying. They, well, yeah, that, yeah that's go. true. Yeah. Things are so big, they need two brains. Uh, like, oh, when the baby does burst out and, like, comes and tries to eat, like, Ron Perlman, uh, Charlie is then, like, like he's, he then looks over to Charlie and is like, ha, I knew that thing wouldn't get it out. His lungs weren't fully developed. It was premature. And then it, like, eats him and he comes back and eats him anyway. <laughs> Oh, it was so great. Oh. But <laughs> and I will sometimes, you know, the one time I felt that they did a really uh, the quippiest moment was, yeah, and it was a really good one. It was, and it was like the only real one I felt that made it even better was when you know Pentecost is look at Riley going, you know, for one, don't ever touch me again. Two, don't ever touch me again. <laughs> you know? Uh, especially even, even the quips are straight to the point in earnest. Especially even just with Idris Elba, he with his playing Stacker Pentecost, his body language just really sells that he's like this close to decking Raleigh right there. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, you can't see my two fingers held really close together, if indicating very close. Uh but yes, it's like he was just about to he was just about to smack him down and it would have been glorious in its own way. But yep. <laughs> he would have fully completed his bright persona. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, but yeah, he's the cool leader guy. He's the cool leader guy, and with with radiation sickness, as is par for the course. Yes, yes. Apparently, like with the exception of the one first generation that is still in action, the other generation, uh, first generation Jaeger pilots. The reason that they are no longer in commission is because. 
you know, they had just built the things. They didn't really understand all of where the radiation leakage would go. Yeah, they weren't really thinking too much about the radiation leakage. They just had to build them fast in order to stop these giant monsters. So in the great tradition of the captain of the Amato and coach from Gunbuster, he's dying from some vague radiation sickness. (laughs) Yep. If you ever pilot a Jaeger again, he will surely die. So guess what he does before the end of the movie. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> guess what is a given to happen before the movie is over. Yeah, I didn't like how they used, like, you know, whenever you know something was physically wrong, you saw the blood trail from the nose. Yeah. Like, also when, when Newt, you know, does his first, you know, drifting with the kaiju brain, when he comes out of it, his nose is dripping blood. Nosebleed, and sometimes yeah. there's a little... Well, again, the implication there is that there is something neurologically... Yeah. The, 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 what is going wrong is a neurologic you know, component. Sometimes like the little burst blood vessel in the eyes and, you know. Uh, yeah. But I'll still say what I really, and this is funny because it's going, you know, it's like, this is so super robot, but I'm about to, have to go delve right into real robots again is, I, I really, what I would love to see out of a sequel is not just more fighting kaiju, which would be great, and I'll watch it and I'll love it, but what I'd love to see is, a, or even a spinoff movie or TV show would be, the fact that, you know, one of the primary things was they were, they didn't feel Jaegers were useful at it anymore. And that's why they're building this wall. And the Jaegers were old news. Well, obviously, the Jaegers just saved the world. They, they closed the rift. So, you know, what's a reason that Kaiju will probably become popular again? And since Kaiju were so useful, then maybe they should start use, looking for their, their use in other things. Like construction. But what if people have all these construction bots and suddenly they run amok and suddenly they'll need a police force, right? What I'm saying <laughs> is, what I want him to do is I want a Pacific Rim spin-off that's Pat Labor. Well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Basil. Is that's what I'm saying. Is what, what we need is Del Toro giving us Pat Labor. Actually, I would just take Del Toro giving us Pat Labor, to be honest. You know, just, uh, <laughs> just straight up. Yeah, just, just... yeah. I mean, just he know. gives us pat labor, and we're happy. Just basically give us, you know, your police drama with a bit of a sense of humor and some giant robots. It's pat labor in a nutshell, and that would be great. And I think that could actually work as a show in the U.S. even. But yeah, who knows? Of course, with the amount of work and the budgets to really that make that really sell Pacific Rim, I, I don't know if you could really pull that off as a TV show. Though. No, no. The giant robot effects. You'd have to either almost never use the giant robots or they'd be really hokey. It's one of the reasons why, you know, pet labor is an anime. Yeah. And, you know, but I in think, 10 years, who knows? Uh, well, I, I keep hearing rumblings of a live action movie. But I don't know if it's like a parody thing or if it's actually, you know, happening or. Just like I kept hearing rumblings of the Neva movie. Well, that was almost a thing. Like, AD Vision was trying to fund that. It just kind of never really Never really happened. Now, this would be much more analogous yeah. to, like, you know, Battle Angel from James Cameron. Mm. Which he swears he'll do someday. And I'm not sure if want. <laughs> not sure if want. <laughs> I, on the one hand, and if we get good James Cameron, that would be an awesome movie. But it could also go the other way and just completely get everything wrong. <laughs> yeah, it could... James Cameron does because James Cameron does what James Cameron does. Yes. He does not do it for you. <laughs> yes, and so. I know he's a big fan, and it could work, but that also him being a big fan might also work against it. Yeah, that's 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 true. Although, 
Pacific Rim, Del Toro, huge fan of the the whole giant monster genre, and he's doing it right. But he made his own thing. He didn't try to recreate something. No, yeah, this is not a... You know, for people who will cry Ava Ripoff, or even us making reference, me making reference to other Super Robot shows, it, it is, is ultimately its own him. thing. Yeah. It is very much its own thing. It homages, it never rips off. And I think something we haven't really talked about is how much, you know, kaiju, like, you know, the kaiju movies that it really also inspires by. Yes. Which makes sense because that's a more, you know, real life, you know. There's a little bit of Godzilla in all of us. Oh, yes. That's what we need. Jaegers to fight a gigantic rock. Yes. Like that is that's obviously well, what needs to happen. But Legendary Pictures, who put out Pacific Rim, they also are putting out the new Godzilla movie. That's true. We could have a crossover one day, is all I'm saying. Uh, actually, I just personally hope Pacific Rim is the first Western giant robot thing to make it into a Super Robot Wars game. But... <laughs> Okay, any final, final spoilery thoughts before we go into, you know, final final Ooh, decisions? Spoilery thoughts. Yes! More with biology! <laughs> okay, so ultimately, what the biologist does is he, like, mind melds with, with the, uh, with the kind, with, like, he has, like, a fraction, like, a, a, a like, cutting of a, a brain. cutting of a brain, and... And uh, he 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 tries to drift with it, and it gives him like this big old nosebleed. But he's able to like go in. Uh, he gets a it, little bit of information, just enough yeah, to make them... just enough to make the commander go. We'll do it again. Go get us some more. The only problem is that in order to do that, he had to accidentally like pull the brain out of its like pickle jar slash slash life support system that it was sitting in. And that it killed the sample. Killed the sample. So he's got to get a new sample. Hence why he had to go talk to Han- Hannibal Chow. Hannibal Chow. Why uh, he's actually important to the story. Uh, and it's around about this time that, you know, he's talking to Hannibal Chow and he has this great line. And this is why I say he's still, he's still somehow playing Charlie from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Despite the fact that the character is obviously much, much smarter than that. Because he's just so excitable. Because he has this great line where he looks at, at Hamill and he goes, "Well, you know, it's really what I'm working on. It's really top secret, but I can't, so I can't tell you." Pause. But it's also really cool, so I might anyway. In fact, yeah, I'm just gonna tell you what I did. I I merged with a I merged I I, I drifted with one of their brains, uh, and so he starts telling them all about it, even though this is top secret classified information. To a guy uh, he's been explicitly told not to trust. <laughs> yeah, uh, and he's just telling them all about it, uh, and finally, like he gets to this point of. And at this moment, something that has never happened before happens. Two, two kaiju come out of the rift at the same time. It's always been one at a time up until this point. Uh, and this actually matches with what the mathematician was saying was the statistical probability. He's, predicting, he's been predicting shorter and shorter intervals between appearances and then that if there would be two and then three. Yeah, so the know. mathematician is still correct that there is... A, a double, double appearance, event a double appearance says. event. Yeah. Um, but as as Newt is explaining to Hannibal, as Newt is explaining to Hannibal about his adventures playing around in giant monster brain, uh, he explains a, a small detail that he left out telling his commander, which is that they they have a hive mind like intellect. They all share their thoughts among each other. And then Hannibal has the great, like, honor of 
saying to the biologist who got caught up in his own work, so you drifted with something that has a hive mind? (laughs) And it's this great little moment where he suddenly realized, oh, crap, I did something bad. Uh, we have never mentioned it is very spoiler is that the the kaiju are not are are made they are there's another intelligent race that is yes. making these monsters essentially assembling them out of cloned body parts yeah it's, they're actually a lot like the jaegers only like the quote unquote baby yeah like they're actually a lot like the jaegers in that this other intelligent race is building them for much the same purpose that the human race is building the Jaeger. So it's really actually kind of an example of two races. And they're they're sending them through to try to clear out some of the vermin of the planet they want to and, take and over. And to further go move on, that when you drift with, with the with the Jaegers, it's sort of a hive mind between two people. Yeah. And the cockpit of like the control center, which is yes. also feeding yes. the information. Yes, that's true. <laughs> and so oh Oh man, yes. Uh, I, I will say that I that thanks to Pacific Rim, I, I can never real I'll never really truly enjoy the song I'm on a boat because when you when you're in a Jaeger, you don't you're never on a boat. You <laughs> you use a boat. Your boat's your sword. Your boat's your weapon. It's your boat bat that you use to like yeah, smack down. I, I do have to say I did love the I did love the fight scenes where like they picked up like trucks and like broken off pieces of building and just like start smacking each yeah, other it with it. Though, it just, just walking down the road with dragging the boat and it's like, like it was like a samurai sword like yes. you see in a bunch of like you know samurai flicks where they're dragging the sword along the ground yes. and, and then of course that ship there is broke the, on the ultimate spoiler week. of the sword the sword scene like, which is important because that's when Mori really gets when she gets to take the center stage yeah. It gets to go because I noticed, especially you know, and I don't know if this is like protocol or the movie just happened to get written this way, but usually it's the person um, to our left mm-hmm. is tends to be the person in charge, and they tend to say the, the dominant amount of dialogue when they're both in the units. It's because um, they're, uh, it's because they're acting as the right brain, like. Probably. Yeah. They're acting as the right That's... brain, which is why they are communicating more, whereas the person in the left brain who is doing more of the problem solving. <laughs> which makes sense. Like, but, you know, it's, well, and so it's, you know, that she said it. Like, normally yeah. it was Riley doing all the talking, mm-hmm. a lot of the communicating, explaining what he's seeing, and blah, 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 what they're doing as they're piloting, you know, the Jaegers. Yeah. But at that moment, she's the one that goes, then she starts talking, goes, no, we still have that weapon, you know, for my family, you know. You know, if she's the one Sword. that's in, you know, she, <laughs> yeah, she's the one in control. She's the one in charge at that moment. And that, I've noticed on the internet is the one scene, no one wants to say anything more than the sword. <laughs> but this is the spoiler section, so yeah. we don't care. I just okay. love it when they whip. So have you ever seen, it's another thing I think we did an awesome cast about, Wild Zero. So there's a scene in Wild Zero where, out of nowhere, our rockabilly punk thug pulls, like, a katana out of his, like, guitar that he's been carrying around the whole movie. And as it turns out that the zombies are all actually aliens, he does, like, a samurai slice through the ship. Yeah, that happens in Pacific Rim. (laughs) 
But in the kaiju, like, you know, it totally like, goes wings out of nowhere, and the, and the soundtrack hits at just the right moments. Oh man, the soundtrack's really that that, yeah, that, that main really theme, where, where, you know, especially when they're when they're when they're, when they're suiting up in the yeah. for their suits and the robot first time that 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 that, that riff and it's like I'm like yeah I'm like, I'm like you know you're getting into it like oh it's gonna be this is gonna be badass and they use that same riff uh, whenever they go out and start doing like yeah badass oh, and, about to occur and since not to take away from the biology rant but when they actually <laughs> detonate a nuclear weapon underwater oh, and it creates yes. a vacuum. <laughs> That then water rushes right back. I in. loved all the dead fish that came up. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, like I don't actually support like massive like nuclear bomb death of fish, but no, but but like to see looking. the fact that they like thought of that was, and of course the moment where it uses its arm sword mm-hmm. to anchor itself so it doesn't get blown away. The gypsy danger anchors itself, you know, and you know the whole thing where you know the gypsy danger is nuclear. Yeah, that's an important plot point. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's well, and it's ref- it's referenced at the very beginning, and then they use it again to say, "Hey, this thing can still power up after that weird EMP thing that shut down the Eureka Striker because this is older tech." You know, and then going, "Oh, by the way, Eure- the Eureka Striker, you can't. You're going to blow yourself up. That's okay. We still nuclear. We still got this. Yes. Now let's go blow up our giant robot to kill all the aliens. And it's, you know, I." Wish yeah. saw, I wish we got a better shot of the little like the like nuclear chest cannon effect, but <laughs> yeah, it, it is kind of weird that the most bombastic battle was sort of the middle battle. It yeah. was. That's the that battle that big, had the that was the big show off the robots battle. Show yeah. off the robots. Show off the monsters. But you know when you do a battle in the underneath the ocean. It can't be quite as bombastic, largely because the robot can't move as fast. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, I like the whole underwater battle. And, oh, yeah, know, I liked it, also, too. Also, you know, like every other battle, you could see what was going on, too. Um, except for the couple shots that were meant to be deliberately obscured. With Well, well the, it was one of the points that they talked about was that, they were, that the robots themselves were having visibility issues because... Mm-hmm. They're freaking underwater. They're walking at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Like, you know, the visibility is not as great. No, and, you know, but you still knew what was going on as the audience. Yeah, like, it was lit up well enough that we as the audience could see what was coming in. Yes, the monsters were now coming in and out of our light field of vision, but they they were were coming in enough that we could see them fully in. I will say that... It also some does somewhat depend on getting a good screen to watch it on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time I saw it, I was in a uh, older movie theater, and it wasn't quite as brightly lit. Oh. And so it was a little hard to see. Whereas when we where we saw it in the, you know, in the car mic, it was a newer screen with newer projector, and it was better lit, and it looked much, it looked better. Like yeah. it was easier to follow. It wasn't as dark, and so I would recommend to everyone. You know, you can't really help what movie theater you see it in. But when you do get it at home, make sure your TV is properly calibrated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was... <sighs> but okay, we've, we're already delving into, you know, I think like almost like a, possibly over an hour already of Pacific Rim. Yes. So let's, let's take a break and we'll come back with our final, you know, our, our, our patented rating awesome cast of systems. Did we really get a patent for that? Shut up. I'm just so, checking. I mean, fine. patent pending, whatever. Yeah, we'll be right back. We're, we're really patent pending? I mean, are, are we patent trolls now? 
Well, yeah, we don't want... We're pending, patent, pending. How about that? We just, we don't want to be like Thomas Edison is all I think we're saying. We don't want to be Thomas Edison, we want to be Tesla. That's right, and we'll be right back. Okay. So, how many awesomes out of awesome can you give this most Pacific Rim of movies? Uh, class 5 Kaiju of Awesome? <laughs> Is there something you want to share with the rest of the class there, Doug? Can I give it... Can I give it a job of awesome? <laughs> well, considering we went this long without making that joke, yes. Okay, I give it. A, I give Pacific Rim a job of awesome, <laughs> which I leaves it to me to bring this home to give it two like minds of drifting awesome. Because if you ain't out of control, you ain't in control. Okay, so did Charlie drift into the D-zone? Think about it. Think about it. You don't get the reference. <laughs> the the D-zone. The dinosaur zone where, everybody, where oh, everybody's a dinosaur oh. and they all drift all the time. <laughs> Oh, Nobody can oh. drive straight. Everybody drifts, and they're dinosaurs. Charlie drifted into the <laughs> D zone. Oh yeah, that that thing with the guys with the brothers who made the thing about the initial D parody with yeah, the dinosaurs. dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. Which boy, I don't know that that's obtuse, but yes, <laughs> I haven't thought about that in a long time. But 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 he did right. Yeah, he, yes. he kind of did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but with that, we are out. Thomas Edison, Tesla all the way.